Welcome to Angry Americans. Welcome to episode 57. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The war against the coronavirus continues, and our children, they're swept up in it. They're quarantining, they're hand washing, and they're watching. And if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Supposing we hit the body with a tremendous, uh, whether it's ultraviolet or just very powerful light. And I think you said that hasn't been checked, but you're going to test it. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body, you can, which you can do either through the skin or uh, in some other way. And I think you said you're going to test that, too. Sounds interesting. We'll the right, folks who right. And then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs and it does a tremendous number of the lungs. So it would be interesting to check that. So that you're going to have to use medical doctors with. But it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. So we'll see. But the whole concept of the light, the way it kills it in one minute, that's, uh, that's pretty powerful. Oh, yeah. That's pretty powerful, all right. Powerful indeed. So is the bully pulpit. And what you just heard is the president of the United States at the podium in the White House suggesting that inserting ultraviolet light and or disinfectant into your body might help fight the coronavirus. Let me repeat that. The president of the United States suggested to America that they consider ingesting disinfectant to fight the coronavirus. I have two kids, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And at least a four-year-old knows that ingesting disinfectants is a no-go. The one-year-old might know it by now, too. But I don't want to test it. But apparently, others do. A Maryland health hotline was so flooded with calls after Trump's speech that the state's emergency management agency had to issue a warning that said, quote, under no circumstances should any disinfectant be taken to treat the virus. Out in Washington state, officials had to urge people not to consume detergent pods. And the New Jersey Poison Information Education System warned that injecting bleach or rubbing alcohol can, quote, definitely be a fatal event. The CDC had to quickly tweet that, quote, household cleaners and disinfectants can cause health problems when not used properly. Even Lysol and its parent company, Rickett Benekasser, released a statement responding to Trump's claims saying, quote, we must be clear that under no circumstances should our disinfectant product be administered into the human body through injection, ingestion, or any other route. They actually had to write that. Lysol had to write that in a public statement. Clorox had to put out a statement too. They wrote, quote, bleach and other disinfectants are not suitable for consumption or injection under any circumstances. They had to write that because people are influenced by what the president says. Some people believe what the president says. And his mind is like that of a child, a bad child, a very bad child, a child who not only lacks the discipline to prevent any idea in his head from flying out of his mouth, but also a child who runs from responsibility. Uh, Maryland and other states, Governor Larry Hogan specifically said, they've seen a spike in people uh, using disinfectant after your comments last week. 
I know you said they were sarcastic. I, I can't imagine take, why. I can't imagine why. Yeah. Take any responsibility? No, I don't. No, I die? can't imagine. I can't imagine that. No, I don't. No, he doesn't. He doesn't take responsibility like a child, like a petulant child. This is peak President Mayhem. In a time where he says shocking shit daily, this is one of the most shocking we've ever heard. And it's not laughable because of one massive reason. Our children are watching. Our children are listening. Our children, unfortunately, are sometimes copying him. What the president says matters, and what the president does matters even more, especially for the millions of kids in this country. As the global war against the coronavirus drags on, our kids are dragged along with it. And in this episode, that's what we'll focus on. The kids. Not the intellectual and emotional toddler in the White House, but the real toddlers, babies, preteens, teenagers, grown children, all children. There are about 74 million kids under the age of 18 in America. That's about a quarter of our total population. And their issues, their needs, their rights, their pain may be one of the most underreported, underappreciated parts of this entire debacle that is the national response to the pandemic. As a child, Trump never got the discipline he needed. He never got the hugs he needed. He never got the love he needed. He never got the time he needed. And we all see the result now. But at least in this show, we won't make that same mistake. There are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. Our president may not be saying it to our nation's kids, but we can. We can tell them we love them by showing them we care. Our guest in this episode is an expert on the future of education. Anya Kamenitz is an education correspondent for National Public Radio. She's a mother of two kids and a celebrated author of multiple groundbreaking books, including The Art of Screen Time which is described as the first essential don't panic guide to kids, parents, and screens. As our battle against the virus drags on, it pulls our kids deeper and deeper with it. But you'd hardly know it if you're listening to the president. He talks a lot about business, but very little about education. Well, we won't repeat that mistake here. In this episode, we'll dig into the questions that are rarely asked in discussions and media coverage of the pandemic. What's the future of education after the coronavirus? What will schools look like after all this? How can they reopen safely? Will colleges go bankrupt? Are we rotting the brains of our kids with all this screen time? Where the hell is Education Secretary Betsy DeVos? What happens now to education in America? 97% of the world's schools are closed right now. This has never happened before. Here on Angry Americans, school is in session. As the war against the virus continues, like a graduate school syllabus of integrity, information, inspiration, and impact, 
we've brought you leaders who can be your tutors to guide you through this new normal. You're visiting professors to help you grow as a person and as a student. Professor of Strategy and Navy SEAL Chris Fussell. Visiting War College lecturer Colonel Miles Caggins. Professor of Inspiration Flo Groberg. Chair of the Angry Americans Medical School, Dr. Paul Hazer. Coach Jake Wood from Team Rubicon, leading disaster relief. Professor of Theater, Arts, and Citizenship, Jeffrey Wright of Westworld and Brooklyn for Life. And Professor of Athletics, David Aldridge on the future of sports. They've been your tutors, your professors. And coming up, I'll talk to our next visiting professor, Anya Kamenitz, about what schools will look like when and if they open. We'll talk about whiskey, of course. We'll hear about Anya's first car in New Orleans and about the car that's now part of our newest makeshift studio for this show. Hint, I've upgraded from my wife's closet to the garage. And for the first time on this show, we will talk about My Little Pony and unicorns. Unicorns, I love them. 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 Yes, people, unicorns. Because it's all about the kids in this episode. Even if you don't have kids, or you're like Trump and you don't like kids, you're still going to want to stick around. It's another conversation with an important, inspiring American that's shaping what this country's been, what it is, and especially what it will be in the days and years ahead. I've also got some really cool updates about listeners stepping up in their communities to be helpers following the lead of Jeffrey Wright. We've got a powerful new way for you to take action and a very unique story about an iconic and very influential angry American from the 80s that's prolific now on Twitter, but not named Stakem. And before we get into our conversation with Anya Kamenitz, with the NFL Drafts class now selected, as some governors rise to the head of the class and others don the dunce cap, and with most of America still stuck in detention and many still at the nurse's office, there are some issues on the chalkboard at the front of the classroom and in Professor Cuomo's PowerPoint presentation that have me angry, have others angry, and should have everyone angry. And as the war against the coronavirus continues to gobble up class time, destroy graduations, and dash dreams of prom night memories nationwide, our line leader for the class again is our expanding and evolving war against the coronavirus. <laughs> And it's a powerful real-world lesson in science, in psychology, in politics, and most of all, in math. And the numbers are adding up. There are now more than 3 million confirmed infections nationwide, and 1 million confirmed cases in the U.S. 1 million people across every state, plus Washington, D.C., and four U.S. territories have tested positive for the virus. 1 million people. That's four times the number in Spain, five times the number in Italy, and six times the number in Germany. And 61,000 Americans are dead. That's more than the number of U.S. fatalities in the entire 10 years of the Vietnam War. And that's probably a conservative number, given our inability to test and our late start in tracking the dead. Here's what the trajectory has looked like in the death toll in America. On February 29th of this year, we had one death. On March 29th, we had 2,425 deaths. On April 29th, just one month later, 
60,967 deaths. The death rate may be slowing down in places like New York and Seattle, but it's still rising nationwide. And of all the COVID-19 deaths in the world, over 25% have been in the United States. We're 4% of the global population, but 25% of the dead. That's a lot of bad news, but there's also some good news. And that perspective is shaped by the best leaders who are also and always good teachers like this guy. What day is today? The, when I was at uh, Housing and Urban Development, uh, I would sometimes say in a staff meeting, what day is today? What's the date? And I worked with a great fellow who was a Catholic priest, Father Joseph Hakala. And he would say, today is another day to do better. This warm smile. Today is another day to do better. Uh, he passed away, Father Hakala. I have his picture in my, uh, in my room, and I was thinking about him last night. Today is another day to do better. It's another day to improve. It's another day to be better, to make life better, to be better at helping people. Today is another day, another opportunity God gave us. Hospitalizations are down. Good news. Net change in total hospitalizations down. Good news. Net change in intubations down. Good news. New COVID cases slightly down, 933, but still unacceptable, but down from where it was. Number of lives lost, still terrible, 306. Uh, Optimists would say the number's on the decline. Realists would say that's a tremendous amount of pain and grief for hundreds and hundreds of New Yorkers who lost a loved one. There is good news to be recognized in places like New York City, but it's also still tough, very tough, and tough now in more and more areas. The virus continues to expand now into rural areas, into meat plants, and it continues to reach farther and deeper into nursing homes all across America. There are no front lines anymore. It's not just Seattle and New York and Detroit that have been touched. The enemy is everywhere now. And if you don't see it near you, it's out there, or it likely will be soon. And some leaders continue to do their homework and see the results in their scores and their grades, and others act out, play to the class, or blow off science class and pay the price. Some governors are following the rules and seeing their numbers respond, and others are bucking the system and will spend days or months in detention paying for it later. States like California stay on top of things and get ahead of the curve. Others, like South Dakota and Iowa, are waking up to failing grades. And nationwide, this is the steepest downturn in the U.S. labor market since the Great Depression. Here's your economics class. The economic collapse from the coronavirus has all the ingredients to surpass the disastrous situation of the 1930s. U.S. jobless claims were submitted by 3.5 million more people after hitting 4.4 million the week before, bringing the total number of Americans who've applied for unemployment to 30 million. That's a number higher than all the jobs created since the Great Depression. So we may be plummeting beyond a recession and into a true depression. President Ronald Reagan once said that a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. Depression is when you lose yours. Almost every single one of us in America will see our economic livelihoods hurt by the coronavirus. 
and the massive economic impact is overtaken only by the pain and loss of life. Last episode, we focused on South Dakota and Georgia, two states that loosened lockdowns and paid a price. Now, a new leader is emerging on the worst scoreboard in America. Iowa. Iowa has the 15th lowest population density for a state, but currently has the fastest rate of coronavirus spread in the entire country. So how'd that happen? Iowa is yet another state that never officially closed. And even as the numbers climb, Governor Kim Reynolds is loosening restrictions. It defies logic, but it does not defy science. She may not be into science, but science is into her, like Lysol inside the Trump family bomb. And it's in the lungs now, and it seems to be popping up everywhere, like AIDS in the 80s, chickenpox in the 70s, herpes in the 60s, the measles in the 50s, polio in the 40s, or Trumpism now. No, I'm not talking about the coronavirus. A significant percentage of America is still riddled with the sickness. A growing percentage of Americans are still riddled with the sickness of stupid. The stupid. The stupid has continued to be the nastiest and fastest spreading virus in America. It spread across leaders in America faster than a case of cooties in the school playground. From the White House to Fox News to the Navy to Florida to South Dakota to Georgia to Iowa and now boomeranging back to the White House, reinfecting people who have been infected before, like this. So ignoring hospital policy, Vice President Mike Pence toured the Mayo Clinic without a mask. He is the only guy in that room without a mask on. Everyone else in that entire facility has a mask on except Vice President Mike Pence. He refused to wear a mask. One of the worst ways to abuse power is to flex and show that rules that apply to everyone else don't apply to you, especially when it's behavior that endangers others. This is not how to lead by example. It's also just a dick move. So evil Boy Scout Mike Pence, who has a sash full of merit badges for excellence in areas like compromising his integrity and mastery of ass kissing, he is now the teacher's gold star winner. He is the valedictorian of dickish behavior. Following the not esteemed list of graduates before him, like Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, South Dakota Governor Christy Nome. Acting Secretary of the Navy Thomas Modley, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Senator Rand Paul. So, Michael, Michael, come on up to the front of the class and get your award. Come on, Michael, don't be shy. We won't make you speak to women or hang out with gay people or do anything else you're not comfortable doing. Just come up here and be recognized. Congratulations, Mr. Pence. You've worked your way to the head of the class. Now, come on, class, sing along with me now. Ready? I drive really slow in the ultra-fast lane While people behind me are going insane I'm an asshole, I'm an Vice President Mike Pence Straight A's in this class on ignorance and selfishness And as the pandemic of stupid spreads it's getting harder and harder for me to retain the Tony Romo Memorial Scholarship of Predicting Stupid. But I'll keep working at it. I'll keep studying hard. 
and I'll watch the prospects. This year's draft is so deep with high-performing assholes, it's tough to see who will emerge as a leader. We'll have to see which student rises to the front of the class in the next episode. 2020 politics in America is filled with more great jerks than the 1985 NFL QB class that had great quarterbacks. The 1985 draft had John Elway, Jim Kelly, and Dan Marino. 2020 has Ron DeSantis, Thomas Modley, and Brian Kemp. But unlike the NFL draft, this thing is going to keep going. Politics produces more first-round assholes than the University of Alabama produces prospects for the NFL. They're the problem children. The ones who won't listen to the teacher. The ones who throw gum at the new kid. The ones who keep trying to watch porn during their online Zoom Spanish class. They didn't do the reading. They keep skipping class. The dog ate their homework. And they're bound to flunk the final exam. The most final exam of all. The exam to keep the people of their state and other states safe. Because the rest of the class in America is studying up to defeat the common enemy that's the virus. Operation Stay-at-Home America is getting relaxed in many areas. Never happened in others, but is thankfully mostly still activated. But now, there's a new mission unfolding. A new class we're all taken for the first time. It's one that we might have to repeat later. But Operation Reopen America is here. The New York Times has a whole new cheat sheet page for it with color coding and daily updates. But 23 states are still shut down and restricted. Nine states have partial reopenings already, and the rest are somewhere in between. It's more chaotic than a bunch of freshmen running around the first day of college on a new campus. Some beaches and state parks are reopening to visitors, sparking deep concerns about overcrowding. The first barbers have returned to work, covering their faces with masks. Even some restaurants are getting ready to serve customers again. But there's confusion. There's pushback. There's increased rates of infection in places that are reopening. Much of America is still staying at home right now and being careful. But much of America also has leadership that's trying to kill the rest of us. Lots of states are rushing to reopen. They can't resist the temptation of good weather in May and the prospects of a nice, warm, coronavirus-filled CrossFit gym. They're pushing hard to make sure schools are reopened and full of sneezing, sweaty, anxious, and confused kindergartners. Because even as nursing homes continue to stack bodies like firewood, they demand to exercise their God-given right as Americans to sing karaoke badly, pack into high school gyms with no air conditioning, and sit in a movie theater full of coughing strangers to watch Fast and Furious 19. Too many governors are moving too fast. They're like substitute teachers letting the class determine the rules. And in the end, they may be popular among the students, but they may also get them all left back. Because the likelihood is high that we'll see new waves of infections in the months to come, just like they have in places like Singapore. In the Army, we used to always say that slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Meaning, don't rush it or you'll pay for it later. And without a vaccine and without adequate testing and contact tracing, we'll be rolling into the final exam hoping for the best. And hope is not a course of action. And most Americans can feel that we need to be careful and thoughtful, especially when we consider the impact on kids. 85% of Americans think it's a bad idea to reopen schools now, according to an NPR Marist poll. If we rush to reopen and continue to lose tens of thousands of our fellow Americans weekly, we'll be doing the work of ISIS, Iran, North Korea, and Russia for them. You can't skip a grade when it comes to the coronavirus. There's no graduating early in the school of the pandemic. You're not in charge. 
the virus is. And if you don't shut it down, it'll shut you down. The war against the virus is in flux right now. The enemy could be beaten back and on the run. Or the enemy could be reconsolidating for another major attack, luring us out of our hiding places so it can strike us later when we're exposed and out in the open. We've got to fight this war in new ways, with new tools and a new level of discipline. We've got to keep our guard up. It's no time to get lazy. We can't get senioritis. We must stay vigilant. America has gotten bad grades all semester. And if we want to advance to the next level, we have to work more, not less, especially for our kids. It's easy to give your kids ice cream every day. It's easy to let them watch PJ Masks until their eyes bleed. It's easy to say yes when they cry and throw a tantrum. But good parents are parents first and friends second. And the same is true with politicians. We need them to do the right thing, not seek out applause or easy polling numbers. Integrity is doing the right thing, even when nobody's looking, and especially when it's hard. It's hard to tell a kid no at the toy store, especially when he or she is throwing a tantrum and the entire store is watching. But our leaders need to stand firm, just like our parents. Take the hard road if needed. Make the tough choices when necessary. And do what's best always for our kids, for our grandparents, for our economy, for our national security, for our future. Getting good grades at a tough school is hard. If it wasn't, everybody would do it. America can be the brainy smart kid who's also tough and a good athlete, but it takes late nights in the library, not keg parties at spring break on the beach. We all want to graduate together. We all want to walk out onto that stage, hear the cheers, and throw our caps up in the air and celebrate. But the semester isn't over yet. Too many are still sick. Too many are still dying, and too many have worked too hard for us to have this opportunity now to blow it. Whether you're a preschooler in rural Vermont or a scholarship recipient at Stanford, a vocational school workhorse in Florida, or a late-night school parent working in Montana, a GI Bill recipient in Texas, or a lunch lady in Oklahoma, from your first-grade teacher to the president of Harvard to the graduating class at West Point, to a self-taught master electrician, to Anya Kamenitz, to me, to you. Now, and maybe forever, we're all Riders on the Storm. Riders on the Storm Riders on the Storm And that storm has now hit one million people in America. That's more than the entire population of Fort Worth, Texas, the entire population of Jacksonville, Florida, the entire population of Austin, Texas. That's more than the entire population of San Francisco, California. COVID-19, the illness caused by the coronavirus, remains the leading cause of death in the United States right now. And new CDC data suggests that the coronavirus death toll is far higher than reported. Death tolls in seven states that have been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic are nearly 50% higher than normal for the five weeks from March 8th to April 11th. There's new information out from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. That's 9,000 more deaths than were originally reported as of April 11th in the official counts of death from the coronavirus. 
So that means numbers are preliminary because death certificates take time to be processed and collected. And the complete death tallies from the CDC can take up to eight weeks to become final. So the speed of reporting varies tremendously by state. In Connecticut, for example, reporting coronavirus deaths are high. The CDC stats include zero reported deaths from any cause since February 1st because the reporting lags. Math was never my favorite subject, but it's important now as much as ever. We all want the best when it comes to education, and we can learn from the smartest folks around us. And instead of listening to the My Pillow guy or Ron DeSantis or Sean Hannity, our president should be listening to someone else, someone like Bill Gates. So listen to Professor Bill Gates. Professor Gates has been dropping knowledge, leadership, and money. And he was on CNN this weekend with Fareed Zakaria, and school was in session. Well, we know that if we do these extreme socialization measures, we get the reproductive rate below one, which means that the total number of active infections starts to go down. What we don't know is we go slightly back to normal, which activities uh, create the risk of a rebound. And so we need to put into place a very dense testing regime so you would detect uh, that rebound going back into the exponential growth very quickly and not wait for the ICUs to fill up and there to be lots of deaths. You know, if you see the hot spot, you can understand the activities causing that, uh, change policy there and get it back uh, down to the, into the decline. So that the, the brute force tactic that was used did work. It worked in, you know, every country uh, but that's caused such immense damage. Now we want to back off from that. And we're a little naive about how to prioritize those activities. We need uh, the testing. We need strong leadership that where the scientific community and the politicians are saying, okay, what's the value? Things like school obviously have a very high value if we can figure out a format that's not driving a lot of infections. And while Trump is busy attacking Bill Gates and science and common sense, some smart leaders are listening to Professor Gates. He says it could be a year or even two years before we can develop a vaccine and the system to distribute it to the population. And it's unlikely, no matter how good we are, that we're going to have a vaccine in time for Christmas. But are you optimistic it'll be on the shorter end? I mean, I've heard people say maybe by December we could imagine starting production. No, I mean, I don't. The, you know, Moderna, you have to do these phase three studies that help you understand if somebody has a condition X or Y or Z, does it create a side effect? You know, there's people with defective immune systems. There's all sorts of things. So the size of the phase three, the global regulators are going to have to get together and decide how many people, what length of time that goes in. And you'll have to trial where there's a very heavy infection rate. So, uh, you know, the, the idea of uh, being in manufacture by the end of the year, that's beyond my... Uh, what's likely. Dr. Fauci and I have you know, been fairly consistent in saying 18 months to not create uh, expectations that are too high because this influences, short of a miracle set of therapeutics, this influences when we get to go back to true normal. Hope is not a course of action. We need a plan and smart leadership. And the focus of this episode is an issue that Gates also touched on because reopening schools is a priority but it could also pour gasoline on the flames of the pandemic. Here's Professor Gates again. Can I just ask you about schools? Because everyone is so, is so curious and worried about this. You have three kids. Um, you know how schools work. I mean, 
lots of people crowded together in classrooms and dormitories in hallways. That is almost the, the definition of school. How, how do you get it going? Well, certainly for the younger age kids where the online substitute is inferior, uh, more inferior than as you get up, say, to college level, that online can capture, at least in terms of the academics, a lot of, of what uh, goes on. There, you know, what we've seen in terms of infection levels is pretty low, and you do have uh, some European countries uh, that are moving ahead with that, and because of their testing, will understand uh, what the viral load is and, you know, compare households with kids going to school versus households that don't have that uh, coming in. Uh, so over the course of this summer, some of that will be learned. And in the fall, that will be one of the toughest questions. It's right on the boundary of, is there a tasteful way to do it that, that particularly for the low-income students where the online learning hasn't been fully enabled because either they don't have the equipment or the connection or their teacher isn't set up for it. Uh, you know, the inequity has gotten greater in education. Uh, so if we can figure out how to do K through 12 in the fall, uh, that would be good. I even think if, if we're creative about it and things have gone well, uh, we'll be able to do college. But there's a lot of data we'll be uh, learning from globally, uh, uh, and we'll see the progress on the tools as well that will inform those decisions. So it'll probably be in August where, you know, the idea of what's the protocol, uh, how many schools are, are uh, opening up that, you know, we won't really know enough until pretty close to the, the start. So we may not know what school in America looks like until August, and it likely won't be like anything we're used to. And our margin of error is pretty small. There's no curve to be graded on. America is about to launch into an entirely new world of education innovation, innovation by necessity. And much more on that coming up with Anya Kamenetz, including the nine things she thinks schools will have to do to reopen. So Anya, Bill Gates, Governor Cuomo, they have plans and are developing plans. No plan survives enemy contact. And strong leadership, just like good teaching, requires candor and a degree of flexibility. And the same is true across government, from the IRS to Homeland Security, and especially in the two departments that are responsible for our national security, backing up our national health care system, and honoring and protecting the greatest generation that gave us the future we still have today. But the Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs continue to struggle in this class. They need some extra tutoring, or maybe they're just slow. We don't have Professor Bill Gates or Dr. Fauci in charge and calling the shots. At DOD and VA right now, it's more like this guy's in charge. All right, listen up, y'all. I'm y'all substitute teacher, Mr. Garvey. I taught school for 20 years in the inner city, so don't even think about messing with me. Y'all feel me? Okay, let's take a roll here. Jay Quellen. Where's Jay Quellen at? No Jay Quellen here? Yeah. Uh, do you mean Jacqueline? Okay, so that's how it's gonna be. Y'all wanna play. Okay, then. I've got my eye on you, Jay Quellen. The Department of Defense and VA do not have their eye on Jay Quellen. They don't have their eye on the ball either. They're zoned out, daydreaming, and bullshitting the teacher when they should have been putting in the work and asking for help after class. Because as states push to reopen and allow freedom of movement, 
the Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs are both going in a very different direction. As our war continues to expand, it's knocking out troops and veterans in ways that only poor leadership can allow. There's two kinds of people in the world right now. The people who get the war at war and the people who don't. It's similar to after 9-11, when some people saw terrorism as a real threat and others didn't. If you're listening, you're probably the former. If you're not, you will be by the end of this podcast. This is a war, and it's a war that the VA is losing. And if you're in a state veterans home listening to this, or you have a loved one that is, you know it all too well. Maybe you've already lost a loved one. Maybe you're working on the front lines right now, long hours and not enough PPE. Because almost no population in America has suffered more casualties than our World War II veterans. Our greatest generation, millions of World War II veterans continue to be lost by the hour. The commander-in-chief is supposed to stand up for our veterans. He talks about it all the time. And the VA is supposed to stand up for our veterans, too, whether they're patients at the department or not. And the VA is supposed to serve as our national health care backstop. But the veterans community is getting decimated. As of this recording, VA is officially reporting 482 coronavirus deaths at its facilities. That's up from 457 just one day before. And according to VA, there are 7,900 cases, up from 7,300 cases the day before. The number of cases at VA has continued to grow for weeks. But our friend Mike Pence says the VA is not seeing an increase in cases at all. He said from the White House, we're very proud of our team at the VA. The VA has addressed its capacity issues. It has not seen cases among veterans and its facilities increase. So they are deploying teams to focus on nursing homes. I'm not going to play the asshole song again. But his leadership has been so awful, he should get the song twice. The numbers are going up by the day. They do have capacity issues. They do have staffing issues. And he's saying the exact opposite. The agency has also only administered 95,000 tests. New York State can now do that alone in a few days. And I continue to post updates on Twitter daily. But the VA added nearly 1,000 new coronavirus cases in just two days, which was a 14% increase and 100 deaths in one week. In addition to the 7,900 patients diagnosed, they've also got 2,100 department employees who have tested positive. That's an increase of about 14% over the week prior to. And hospitals in New Orleans, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. have now all recorded more than 200 cases. And the virus has spread all the way to Oregon. And so has the stupid. Check this out. There was a recent coronavirus dance party among the leadership at an Oregon medical center, even as the number of cases among the patients and staff in the healthcare system continues to climb. The event, made public by the Oregonian, included at least 16 staff and raised concerns among some employees at the Roseburg VA healthcare system that local leaders might not be taking social distancing recommendations seriously. Listen to this.
That's Keith M. Allen, the director of the Roseburg Veterans Administration Healthcare System, leading more than a dozen staffers into a small office on Friday, April 24th, holding a boombox on his shoulder, blaring Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. The employees are not practicing social distancing. Almost none of them have masks on. And a week later, the Roseburg VA confirmed that four of its employees and one patient had tested positive for COVID-19. So no, you should not be reaching out. So no warm touching warm, no touching me, no touching you. You shouldn't be playing that version of Sweet Caroline. Fenway Park is closed, and even Neil Diamond knows the old song is wrong. That's why he did a new version as a PSA. Yes, really. Check this out. So good, so good, so good. So you should not be having a coronavirus dance party. You should also not be downplaying the severity of the threat. And if you're going to sing a song in Oregon or at any other VA facility, it should be this one. So the coronavirus is now crushing older veterans and their families nationwide and countless veterans outside the system, but especially in our nursing homes. I've been sounding the alarm about state veterans' homes for over a month now, and the news is finally starting to get out nationally. The New York Times wrote a piece and others are starting to follow. But unfortunately, my predictions have come to pass in the most tragic of ways and the worst of ways. We've covered Holyoke, Massachusetts, and the soldiers' home there for weeks. Two more veterans have passed away in the last 24 hours, bringing the total veterans dead to 82. 82 veterans have now died in a single veterans' home in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And as we feared, it's a tip of the iceberg. The St. John Parish Veterans' Home in New Orleans, that's got the deadliest cluster yet in the state where 50 veterans have died. And in New Jersey... 102 residents and one staff member have died from the coronavirus at the Paramus and Menlo Park locations. The virus has infected at least 265 residents and 122 staff at the two facilities in New Jersey. Stony Brook, New York, 52 dead there now. And in Richmond, Virginia, West Palm Beach, Florida, Rowan County, North Carolina, Scarborough, Maine, East Vincent Township, Pennsylvania, Alex City, Alabama, Floresville, Texas, Oxford, New York, 26 are dead at a reserve Louisiana facility. And now there's a new outbreak at a state veteran's home in Bristol, Rhode Island. The outbreaks just keep emerging and veterans just keep dying. And still, there's no national plan to protect our vulnerable veterans in nursing homes nationwide. That included Frank Zauchi. 97 years old, who died of COVID-19 at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home in Massachusetts. During World War II, Frank served in the Navy aboard the light cruiser USS Nashville, earning four battle stars. And he served aboard the USS Stephen Potter, earning 10 battle stars, all in the South Pacific. He was a member of his local American Legion post in East Springfield and a lifetime member of the U.S. Navy's disabled veterans of World War II. His wife, Eleanor, died in 2002. And he leaves two daughters, four grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Frank died of COVID-19. 
He didn't die from a Japanese kamikaze. He didn't die from a bullet. He died from COVID-19 in Holyoke, Massachusetts. About a fifth of all U.S. virus deaths are now linked to nursing home facilities. And these are just the ones we know about now. Next episode, I'm sure I'll have more. And if you know of any that are not reported, let me know via the Angry Americans website or find me on social media and share the information. I'll keep it confidential. But our nursing homes have become death pits. And as I said before, we need a national plan and a national leader for nursing homes specifically, and veterans nursing homes in particular. VA Secretary Wilkie is AWOL on this, and we need someone with authority and leadership and maximum pressure on Trump and Congress to act now. If you're not angry about this, you're not paying attention. So please think of Frank, remember Frank, and remember so many others, and share this information and raise some hell. They deserve better, and there are many more who we can still save. So the VA is facing its biggest test in its entire existence, and it's failing. In this world, a C- is not a passing grade because it means too many veterans die. And all the latest numbers continue to chug higher, including testing, but that's the one number that shouldn't just be chugging, it should be exploding. It's still below 100,000 nationwide for the country's largest healthcare system that serves 9 million veterans. And the slow rollout of testing by the VA is still one of the most underreported and important stories in America. And instead of focusing on testing, VA Secretary Wilkie, after being MIA for weeks, has now emerged to spin about the VA's PPE shortage and push dangerous lies about snake oil. The hashtag we've been using is where is Wilkie, because his leadership has been invisible. Except, apparently, when he talks about Trump's favorite snake oil. Check him out here with Stephanie Rule last week. I do want to ask you quickly before we go. Washington Post has a new report, a study about the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine. President Trump has touted this, uh, but it is linked to higher rates of death in the VA, uh, coronavirus related. Can you elaborate what's going on with this drug? Sure. That, that's an observational study. It's not a clinical study. It was done on a small number of veterans. Um, sadly, those of whom were in the last stages of life um, and the drug was given to them. And I have to, I have to also say that we know the drug has been working on middle age and younger veterans. And the governor of New York was just in the Oval Office yesterday asking for more of the working drug to be delivered what? to the city of New York. Uh, working in in stopping the progression of the disease. So the president's comments have been aspirational. Um, this study that The Washington Post reported on and one that we put on our website because we we're not hiding anything is just another tool in the toolbox that doctors can use when they talk with patients and families about the at the, the best possible uh, approach for care for veterans uh, who have the virus. He said, we know the drug has been working. We know the drug has been working. <laughs> Wrong answer. And the AP, the Associated Press, did a fact check. The great reporter over there, Hope Yen, had the title, Veterans Chief Plugs Unproven Drug. So Wilkie mischaracterized the study's finding. And he, his own agency called it inaccurate and irresponsible. He also rejected a study that relies on his department's own hospital data and finds absolutely no benefit from hydroxychloroquine. His claim that it helps younger or middle-aged veterans with COVID-19 is also bullshit. 
And with 368 patients, this is the largest look so far at hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19 of any kind, and it's based on VA hospital data. And about 28% of those who were given hydroxychloroquine plus usual care died. 28% of them died versus 11% of those getting routine care alone. So not only did researchers see no benefit from the drug, the drug could actually be killing people. So there's bigger outrage. Not only is it not working, veterans are being used as guinea pigs to test this snake oil. There's no proven benefit and a higher death rate. Jeremy Butler is now the CEO at IVA. He took over from me and has been doing a great job. And he was speaking out about the injustice with Brianna Keeler, who's also a military spouse herself, on CNN. Check this out. As you're aware, the FDA, Jeremy, is actually still allowing this drug to be used on patients in hospitals, in fact, uh, in clinical mm -hmm. trials, despite that there are these deadly risks. I mean, the FDA has said that. But a VA spokesperson just told our national security reporter, Zach Cohen, that they plan to continue using that. So what do you make of that? I, I think it's terrifying. It, it tells me that the government is comfortable using veterans as a testing ground for this uh, drug. Uh, where is the evidence that they're using to determine uh, that it, it's safe to continue? Uh, when we've got this study, uh, we see no other evidence coming out that it is beneficial. If they do have evidence, then it's on the VA's they should be sharing this. This is exactly the time where we need to be hearing more from the VA about why they're making these choices, what they're seeing in terms of if it's useful in some cases. They need to be sharing that information so that the entire country, uh, not to mention the entire world, can react and potentially benefit if it is actually useful. But we're not seeing any of that. If anything, we're seeing a stonewalling from them about uh, the decision process they use uh, to determine when and if they're going to uh, prescribe hydroxychloroquine to veterans. Truth and transparency continue to be a problem for Wilkie. And as we focused on before, Wilkie is also under investigation himself after a complaint that he sought information to discredit a House staffer who said she was sexually assaulted in a VA hospital. We've covered it before on this podcast, but the woman has bravely spoken out. Andrea Goldstein, she's a Navy Reserve Intelligence Officer and a Senior Policy Advisor for the House Veterans Affairs Committee Women's Veterans Task Force. In September, she said she was sexually assaulted at a VA medical center in Washington. And as required by VA regulation, Goldstein's allegations were turned over to the department's inspector general to conduct an independent criminal investigation. But the complaint alleges that while the inspector general and prosecutors investigated Goldstein's allegation, Wilkie initiated what the complaint described as his own investigation into Ms. Goldstein's credibility and military record. Now, Wilkie's denied that. He's also denied discussing it with Representative Dan Crenshaw from Texas. But an email obtained by ProPublica indicates he actually did discuss it with Dan Crenshaw. Did he talk about her with Crenshaw? Well, the VA secretary changed his story amid allegations that he sought dirt on the House staffer. So the emails show that they did. So Wilkie seems to be lacking in transparency and honesty yet again. And to top off all the problems happening at the VA as if all that isn't enough, apparently the federal government is confiscating PPE orders from the federal government. FEMA hijacked 5 million masks that were from the VA, which is very short on supplies. The mask disappeared to the VA hospital chief, and hospitals are now at austerity levels. We've covered the nurses' protests happening in places like Atlanta and New Jersey. So lovely. This is what it looks like when the president pits agencies within the federal government against each other. And there's another story I want to highlight. Senator Elizabeth Warren announced on Thursday that her oldest brother, Donald Reed Herring, died after testing positive for coronavirus. Elizabeth Warren said that Herring joined the Air Force at age 19. 
and he spent his entire career in the military, including five and a half years of it in combat in Vietnam. Now, if he died outside of a VA facility, he's one of the countless veterans who died from the coronavirus that are not included in that VA count. It's a very significant percentage of the overall loss. We have no idea how many veterans like Donald have been lost to coronavirus. We have no good data, and we need it badly. Because it looks like VA is failing the big test, and the Department of Defense is failing test after test, too. The coronavirus has now gotten into the bloodstream of the entire military, and especially into the Navy. I think I might have The numbers showing up positive, and the number of dying within the military is rising. And the USS Roosevelt is still out of commission. The aircraft carrier that was led by Crapton Crozier and the center of all the controversy, still out of commission because the virus has infected nearly 1,000 sailors. It's killed one and temporarily hobbled a vital aircraft carrier that's part of the mission encountering China's power in the Asia-Pacific region. So we have an entire aircraft carrier out of commission. And there's word now the Navy may be reinstating heroic Captain Crozier, who tried to sound the alarm about this problem on the Roosevelt. The Navy's launching a wider investigation into the coronavirus crisis aboard the U.S. aircraft carrier and suggesting a closer and deep scrutiny of the actions and decisions made by senior admirals that led to the firing of the commander nearly a month ago. So a new investigation was announced by James McPherson, the acting Navy secretary, who said in a brief statement that an initial inquiry proved insufficient. He's a retired rear admiral, has served as the Navy's judge advocate general, its top lawyer. So hopefully they'll get to the bottom of this and find out what really happened. And if Crozier should be exonerated, he should be exonerated publicly. And he should get an apology because he was looking out for his sailors. And that's what a good commander, a good teacher, a good leader is supposed to do. Because it looks like that Theodore Roosevelt was just the first. Now a second ship, the USS Kidd, has reported a coronavirus outbreak at sea. The destroyer pulled into San Diego with at least 78 sailors infected, reflecting more efficient action by the Navy to address the threat posted by close quarters. But that's more than 20% of the ship's crew. Now, interestingly, the Navy will no longer be officially releasing information about the number of coronavirus cases aboard the Theodore Roosevelt and the USS Kidd. It's a sudden change of policy that was made with no notice and no official explanation. But both ships have experienced major outbreaks. Now, I'm actually okay with this. I don't really think that the Navy should be publicly announcing how many ships are down and which ships are down and how many guys and gals are down. It's called operational security. We're not supposed to tell the enemy where our weaknesses are. So I'm actually okay with them flexing this level of operational security. They're giving details down to the ship. The VA can't even tell us how many people are dying in their entire workforce, but at least the DOD knows down to the ship. We also know that the DOD is ramping up the number of National Guardsmen that are supporting the COVID-19 response. Over 44,000 National Guardsmen have now been activated to support the pandemic. And as if the military hasn't had enough to deal with, President Mayhem is going to make it worse, as he always and uniquely does. He's going to go to a school that he never got into himself, but always dreamed of. Trump is going to West Point. And so the day before Mike Pence was about to speak at the Air Force ceremony in Colorado, Trump, who's never one to be upstage, abruptly and surprisingly announced that he would be going, in fact, to West Point. He would be speaking at their graduation. 
that was news to everyone, including the officials at West Point. It's total chaos. 1,000 cadets that were scattered all across the country now have to come all the way back to New York, which is the state with the epicenter of the outbreak, to hear Trump give a speech. And it doesn't look like the Secretary of Defense stood up to him. Secretary of Defense Esper is, again, failing to stand up to Trump. It's the latest in a long and shameful line. It's another betrayal of the sacred trust that our commander-in-chief chairs of the military and our troops and veterans are, again, nothing but political toys to him. So President Mayhem's going to put roughly 20% of the Army's new officers at risk unnecessarily. He's endangering them and our national security, all for yet another shameless photo op of the military. If we lose just one cadet to COVID-19 or any of them are taken offline or sick, it'll have been a loss that was entirely preventable. But Secretary of Defense Esper again folded. He's doing his best to give the military a bad name. But thank God for these guys. Blue Angels and Thunderbirds from the Navy and Air Force, respectively, put on a hell of a show in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. And my kids and countless others were psyched. For all the issues and politicization, the USS Comfort actually gave my kids in New York City a morale boost, and this did the same. At least in our house for that day, it was the ultimate addition to an aviation day of homeschooling. It was pretty cool. And in times of war, you need a morale boost. And by the way, these guys have to train anyway, so it's not like they're wasting tons of money to fly the Blue Angels unnecessarily over the city. They have to train anyway. But the Navy may be making a public relations rebound. And this will help, too, because the Navy found UFOs. Dude, this is bro. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Look at that thing, dude. That's not our LNS, though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's a like other thing, it's rotating. That's the sound of pilots tracking what is believed to be UFOs. The Pentagon has now declassified three previously leaked top-secret Navy videos that show unexplained aerial phenomenon that some believe could show unidentified flying objects, UFOs. So in an effort to clear up any misconception by the public about whether or not the footage has been circulated, the Pentagon let the footage go. And the aerial phenomena observed in the video remains characterized as, quote, unidentified. But retired Commander David Fravor told ABC News back in 2017 what he saw on a routine training mission on November 14th, 2004, off the coast of California. I can tell you, he said, I think it was not from this world. I'm not crazy. Haven't been drinking. It was after 18 years of flying. I've seen pretty much about everything I can see in that realm. And this was nothing close. He said, I've never seen anything in my life in my history of flying, that has the performance and the acceleration. And keep in mind, this thing had no wings. That's what Fravor said. So with the U.S. consumed by the coronavirus, our enemies around the world have been celebrating. And maybe aliens are too. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. No, Will Robinson. Danger. Let's just hope they're friendly. Meanwhile, less well attended by the young students in our Coronavirus University online learning module is our class on political science. But that class is still ongoing, and it's focused on the race for president. So Joe Biden is now the nominee, 
and folks are rallying around Joe Biden. And that includes some unlikely people, including Howard Stern. Howard Stern, the radio legend, announced on Monday that he's all in on Joe Biden. He made his endorsement on his SiriusXM show after a Trump supporter defended the president's remarks about using disinfectant and ultraviolet light to combat the coronavirus. Trump tried to walk that back, by the way, on Friday, said he was being sarcastic. Howard said, what's it going to take? I don't get it. I don't think there's anyone left who will vote for him. I'm all in on Joe Biden, he said. He also said, you can see the wall that's right next to you. I'll vote for the wall over a guy who tells me I should pour Clorox in my mouth. Listen, I think we're all in deep shit. I think we could have been ahead of this curve. So Howard Stern is in Joe Biden's corner. And so, unsurprisingly, is Hillary Clinton. So I want to add my voice to the many who have endorsed you uh, to be our president. Just think of what a difference it would make right now if we had a president who not only listened to the science, put facts over fiction, but brought us together, showed the kind of compassion and caring that we need from our president and which Joe Biden has been exemplifying throughout his entire life. Think of what it would mean if we had a real president, not just somebody who plays one on TV, but somebody who gets up every morning worried about the people that he's responsible for leading during this crisis. Well, I know what a difference it would make because I've been there. I've seen firsthand what presidents can and should do. And I, like so many Americans, really wish that we had that kind of leadership now. And Biden's going to need her especially now, because frustration is mounting in many parts of the Democratic Party because Biden has remained silent on a sexual assault allegation. Some activists and women's rights advocates have urged Biden to address a former aide's allegation that he sexually assaulted her back in 1993. And his lack of response has angered a lot of people. So we'll see how long Biden can remain silent on this. He may just step back and let it blow over, in the same way he's trying to let Trump blow himself up. And it seems to be working. In two new Fox News state polls, Biden's winning. He's up 49 to 41 percent in Michigan. And in the key battleground state of Pennsylvania, Biden's up 50 percent to Trump's 42. And there's some new national polling numbers, too, where Trump is up 11 percent among men, unsurprisingly. But Biden is up among women 23 percent. And overall, Biden's up 10 points. So Biden's in the lead. He's in a basement. And Trump's out there imploding just about every day. And we thought we were going to be done with new candidates. But Jesse Ventura, Jesse the Body Ventura, says he's testing the waters for a Green Party bid for president. He was the Minnesota governor and a member of the Reform Party. And he said this week that he's testing the waters about a potential 2020 run for president on the Green Party ticket. So Ventura may jump in. Son of a bitch is dug in like an Alabama tick. You're hit. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. And he ain't got time to bleed. He also ain't got much time to run. And I'm not big on this idea. I've met the governor. I've known the governor. He's a Navy SEAL. But I don't know how much traction he's going to get in this environment. Just when you thought that might be the end, Michigan Congressman Justin Amash, an independent who left the Republican Party last year because he said he was delusioned with the party politics, has announced he's exploring a third party bid for the White House himself. Amash announced on Twitter that he's forming an exploratory committee to seek the Libertarian Party's nomination for president with the message, let's do this. 
He said, today I launched an exploratory committee to seek the Libertarian Party's nomination for president of the United States. Americans are ready for practical approaches based in humility and trust of the people. Dude, it's a little late in the semester to try to join this class. So pay attention, students, because there's still a lot of learning left to do in the race for president. Now, I hope Joe Biden can teach us. I hope he can teach us about kindness and to think about kids. He can kind of be like a new, older Mr. Rogers for a new generation. He can teach them to be helpers. And we got to always look for the helpers. That's a theme of this show, and especially now. And we're in a moment where teachers are teaching kids how to be helpers. And kids are teaching us all how to be helpers. And they are truly the heroes we need. And helpers continue to step up, but they also continue to be lost. The fire department in New York is mourning the loss of emergency medical technician Idris Bay. He was 60 years old. He was a 27-year veteran of the EMS and a responder to the rescue and recovery efforts at the World Trade Center. He lived in Queens, and EMT Bay began his career assigned to Station 35 in Williamsburg in 1993. After nine years in Brooklyn, he was assigned to the EMS Training Academy in Fort Totten, where he was a kind, beloved veteran instructor for nearly two decades, and he survived by his four children. EMT Bay is the eighth member of the FDNY to die from COVID-19. Seven members, including Bay, have been announced publicly. One member's family has requested anonymity, and the department will respect those wishes. He served the city and the country for 27 years as an EMT. He was a 9-11 first responder and a teacher to many. And it's a huge loss for the department and the city. But firefighters stepped up to salute their own. And that included some inspiring stuff from FDNY firefighter Luis DeRosa from Ladder 15, who played this in honor of our healthcare workers in Lower Manhattan. He and the FDNY saluted all those that continue to serve in the city's response to COVID-19. And he played this. And there are other folks that are stepping up to help the helpers, including the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. I've told you about them before on this show, but they support our military, police, and firefighters. And now the foundation is stepping up again to support healthcare workers who are risking their lives battling the COVID-19 pandemic. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation has established a new Heroes Fund and is pledging $3 million to support frontline healthcare workers by providing meals, PPE, and if a healthcare worker loses their life to COVID-19 and leaves young children behind, they will provide financial relief by paying off the mortgage on the family's home. And helpers can come from all different places, including Conor McGregor, the UFC fighter, whose whiskey company has now donated a million dollars to Tunnel to Towers. And... Because we talk about whiskey on this show, he's also making a donation for every sale of his proper 18 Irish whiskey. Would love to get a case of that, Connor, if you want to send it over. And we'd love to have you on this show anytime. But thanks for stepping up to be a helper. And the helpers are coming from across the country, including an inspired listener of this show. Jim Pfeiffer has stepped up after hearing our show with Jeffrey Wright. Check this out. We know this is a really hard time for everybody. Many of us are stuck at home, but there's a lot of people out there still working for us. There are also many struggling small businesses 
We wanted to find a way to help. So we came up with the idea for Essential Ohio, helping those who help us. Essential Ohio is an idea that we got from listening to a podcast where actor Jeffrey Wright was speaking. It's simple. Keep restaurants in business by paying them to feed and thank those essential workers who risk so much to provide for all of us. So we hired a food truck and fed our grocery store workers. As you can see, we had our first event recently, feeding more than 60 employees at our local grocery store with great food from Nico Street Eats. Everyone enjoyed the event, six feet apart, of course. We're committed to funding another Essential Ohio event, but we can't do more without your help. We started a GoFundMe to help support even more meals at more locations, and we're open to suggestions. To donate, just follow the Essential Ohio GoFundMe address on the screen. If you have any questions, just post them in the comment section below and we'll do our best to respond. Thanks for watching, and I hope we join together and help those who help us, Ohio's essential workers. So after hearing Jeffrey Wright and following his lead on Brooklyn for Life, Jim's now created Essential Ohio. So look for their GoFundMe page. We'll post it on our website and on this page, but you can also look for the hashtag Essential Ohio. Jim has raised almost 3000 bucks on their way to a $6,000 goal. And Jim tweeted that they just had their second event and fed over 50 non-essential grocery store workers. It was only the second time since the shutdown that Nico's Street Eats was able to operate. So check out the GoFundMe page, support Jim, support Essential Ohio, and support Nico's Street Eats. They're doing good stuff out there in Ohio. And the unlikely helpers continue to emerge, including these guys. That's New Kids on the Block, featuring Boys to Men, Jordan Sparks, Naughty by Nature, and Big Frida. New Kids on the Block, the boy band with Joey McIntyre, Donnie Wahlberg, and Danny Wood, and the brothers Jordan and Jonathan Knight. They recorded this song, House Party, and it came out just last week. They made a music video while social distancing, and they hoped they could lift spirits and keep people dancing. And the best part, it's for a good cause. All proceeds from the song, including t-shirts that are available on the band's website, go to No Kid Hungry. More on them coming up. But helpers can be students. Helpers can be teachers. Helpers can be adults. And they can be kids, even new kids on the block. The pandemic will inspire a new generation of helpers. The kids that now clap for our heroes at 7 p.m. in cities nationwide. The kids who put rainbows in the windows. The kids that are studying now to become doctors and nurses and the kids who might find a cure for this virus and others. They're the ones we're sacrificing for when we stay home. And they're the ones who are sacrificing for us when they stay home. They're being asked to serve, every single one, as a generation, in ways that didn't even happen after World War II. Healthy or sick, toddler or teenager, they're all being asked to help just by staying home. And many are doing much more. The kids are going to inspire us guide us, and maybe carry us through to our VC day, our victory over coronavirus day. Things will never be the same as they were, but the kids will find ways to make it better. And one day, we'll have first days of school again, and trips to the beach again, and vacations to Disneyland again, and baby's first birthdays again, and fifth birthdays again. My son Ryder will turn five in August, and whether he's back in school in the fall, or in the winter, or next spring, he will enter a better world of education because of leaders like Anya Kamenetz.
As the war against the virus continues, the world of education is a hidden and critical battlefield. The future of education has been turned upside down, and it's terribly underreported. With 97% of the world's schools now closed, the virus has shut down and upended everything we know about education. Graduations are canceled, dorm rooms are empty, school lunches are left uneaten, and tens of millions of kids are now glued to screens all day long. This is education in our pandemic-stricken world, and the stakes for America couldn't be higher. Anya is the best kind of teacher. She's brilliant, creative, compassionate, tough, disciplined, committed, fun. Angry Americans continues our groundbreaking focus on the frontline fighters of the war against COVID-19 with another important and inspiring guest who's shaping the future. Anya is a powerful expert on learning and the future. She's the education correspondent for National Public Radio, co-host of NPR's Life Kit Parenting Podcast, and a celebrated author of multiple books, including The Art of Screen Time, which is the first essential don't panic guide for kids, parents, and screens. She's also the author of Generation Debt, which focuses on youth economics and politics, and DIYU, Edupunks, Edupreneurs, and the Coming Transformation of Higher Education. And she's the author of The Test, about the past, present, and future of testing in American schools. Anya's our professor in this pod, and she'll give us all a crash course on parenting in the pandemic. She was also a staff writer for Fast Company, covering technology, innovation, sustainability, social entrepreneurship. She's written for The Village Voice, The New York Times, New York Magazine, The Oprah Magazine, and she was named a game changer in education by Huffington Post and three times won national awards from the Education Writers Association. She also leads the innovative NPR Ed team, which won a 2017 Edward R. Murrow Award for innovation from the Radio, Television, Digital News Association. Anya's shaping the future of education and educating parents, grandparents, aunts, and neighbors. She's a voice for the teachers and for the students and for the future. And in this episode, we're going to educate you with a dynamic and innovative class filled with the four eyes. It's a science lesson of integrity. It's a math class of information. It's an art project of inspiration and a virtual graduation of impact. We're all learning a lot right now, daily, about our kids, about our neighbors, about ourselves, about the world around us. The first day at a new school is always a bit scary, but it can also be exciting. We can stick together, work together, and make a better classroom, a better community, a better future. And the children will lead the way. But first, we have to lead for them. Welcome to a crash course in the state of our schools. Welcome to the future of education. Welcome to the future of America. Welcome to the future of everything. Welcome to Angry Americans, episode 57. around the country and around the world. Uh, welcome to another very important, insightful, inspiring conversation with an American that I think is really at the forefront of one of the most important and maybe most underreported uh, portions of our global war against the, the coronavirus. Um, we need to talk about education. We need to talk about the future of education. We need to talk about our children, other people's children, the children of the world. And there is nobody better that I could think of to talk to than the great and powerful 
Anya Kamarenis. And I am so grateful to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. How are you? And I ask, I've been asking every guest since the, since the pandemic started, how are you and where are you? And what is it like where you are for you and the people close to you? Uh, I'm quarantined in Brooklyn in a townhouse with my two daughters and my husband and our cat. And we're all, my husband and I are working from home and uh, we're all healthy. We're all safe. Um, it's incredibly sad. Uh, we, we passed the peak now. And so there's less ambulances in the streets, but a lot more time to kind of reflect on what happened and, and where we're going. So um, I'm, I'm anticipating, you know, uh, kind of gearing up for the next phase of this. Mm, I want to, I want to dig into that. And I've, we talked to Jeffrey Wright a couple episodes ago, who was in Brooklyn, he was in Fort Greene. Um, mm -hmm. You know, for those of us that are in and around New York, it's definitely different, more intense. Can you shape maybe what, what, what's happening outside your walls? Like, you know, my apartment had for a while, sirens come by it every hour. Uh, Jeffrey, while we were talking, sirens were coming by. Can you shape maybe the experience around the, the bubble that is your family right now for people who maybe are in another neighborhood or in another part of the world? Yeah. I mean, well, we're in Greenpoint, um, which is uh, got a fair number of elderly people. It's a Polish neighborhood traditionally. Um, it's bordered very closely by Bushwick, um, which is a very high Hispanic population, um, a lot of undocumented folks. So a lot of folks that are having trouble accessing food um, and basic needs. And, um, you know, and then also bordered by some of the most affluent parts of Brooklyn, Williamsburg and all of that. So it's really varied. I mean, there's everything from, you know, the, the kind of, we go to like the bougie, uh, uh, butcher shop that's become like the general store and they deliver groceries to people that need them. Um, and everybody goes out in their block and applauds for the essential workers at seven o'clock. Um, but we also know that there's so much need going on. And, uh, I think that's really, it's a, it's been a great time to be in my neighborhood, to be honest with you. I feel like we've become closer as a neighborhood and people see each other in the street, acknowledge each other more. I don't know. Does it feel that way for you? It does. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about um, the last, you know, it feels like another fight for the city. And, yeah. you know, for me, maybe the most significant one was 9-11. But then yeah. there was Sandy. Then there were some like I was I was deployed in the army when the blackout happened. Um, right. But there are different moments that kind of bind everyone together. And I think New York's great about that. You can feel that really strong connected tissue kind of flex. Um, yeah. I feel like that's, that's happening now. And, and I think thankfully it's happening in other places too, but I've described it as a war. And I feel like there are some places that are front lines on the war, some that are emerging or starting and some that are just distant and kind of watching it from afar. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how, that's how it's felt for me. But, um, part of this show is also about taking a minute to reflect and, and we're all looking for escapes. And one question I, I can't let you pass on because you're also a super interesting person. That's why I wanted to talk to you for a while. Um, what is your adult beverage or cocktail of choice, Anya? Um, it's it's got to be bourbon because um, I'm from the South, and we like to spiff it up with different things. We Last weekend, we made something with, like, fresh ginger and some lemon and, and like, a simple syrup. So, yeah. Nice. Do you have a, do you have a brand of choice? or, or? I, I'll go bullet. Um, but then sometimes it, sometimes I'll go rye. I'll go like old overholt if it's a rye. So it kind of depends on my mood. You, so we're in, uh, welcome to studio D by the way, you are the <laughs> studio Delta. You're the first guest ever 
for folks who <laughs> are listening, I'll describe it for you. For folks who are watching, you can see it behind me, but we have uh, Unleash uh, Righteous Media Studio D. We've got the 69 Camaro behind me that still needs a name. Uh, <laughs> we've got the New York State flag. We've got the American flag. But over here, over my shoulder, Anya, is, uh, is, is a lot of bourbon and whiskey, all American made. And, okay. uh, and there is an old Willits Rye up there, too. So awesome. Rye okay. is making a comeback. And, and I oh, think yeah. uh, this show is going to do all we can to try to support that. Um, <laughs> but another question we ask of all guests, when you were growing up, can, can you tell us, um, Anya, what was your first car? Uh, well, I didn't ever really have a car to my name, um, but I drove my parents' Camry hatchback, and I definitely crashed it. You did? I did. I did. I crashed it. I had had a fight with my boyfriend, and I um, in New Orleans, we have the neutral ground, so there's a lane of traffic, and then there's a midpoint and another lane of traffic, and I pulled out. I just did not look at all. I mean, there's no... There's no mitigating anything. I was stressed out. Don't drive the car when you're stressed out. That's just the, yeah. What, what year was the, was the camera? What color was it? It was white. It was kind of like a, you know, blurby, dented, white hatchback, very sensible type of car. And uh, if that was 1996, then that car was probably in 1989. Wow. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is why we ask the car story. There's never a disappointing answer to the car story, no matter who the guest is or what background they come from. Uh, I wish I could tell you something better. I mean, I had a friend in high school who had a Mercedes, and he used to keep a log of everybody he caved rides to because Brian would drive, and he loved to have a new person in the Mercedes. So if you were needed a ride, you could call Brian. He'd come get you in the Mercedes. Wow. All right. We might need right. to have Brian on the show <laughs> and see what the log looks like. Um, so, Anya, we, I was trying to figure out while we were talking before the interview started, uh, the conversation started, when we first met. But I feel like I've known you forever, like post 9-11. But you've been yeah. at Fast Company, at NPR, you've done TED Talks, you've been everywhere. But uh, I, I've been so eager to talk to you because I feel like you have evolved with the times and you consistently stay ahead of the national conversation on whatever it is, whether it's technology, education, the pandemic, and your reporting and your books continue to do that. But where did you, you said you wanted to save it yeah. when we were recording? Where did we meet first? Well, I just have to say, I feel the same way about you, Paul. And it's been amazing to see your evolution and the leadership that you've shown for the communities that you are a part of and the success that you've had. I just think it's really, really awesome, sincerely. Um, but we first met at a, a book fair. It was some kind of political related thing and you would just come out with hungry ghosts oh. and I had just come out with generation debt. And so I think we were like placed almost side by side at, at this book signing situation that had something to do with some, some political conference. Wow. So okay. we were, we met as fellow authors, which is like really kind yeah. of. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, and you've written many books since I have not. <laughs> but so, that book was so good, Paul. Thanks. It was such a good book. Well, I think the same about all of your work and, and all of your books. So, so I, I want to um, kick off the conversation about what the future of all this looks like. And I think I read one of your bio descriptions where it said you talk about the future and education, right? Yes. And, and those are what you're passionate about. And, and I, I want to dig deep into that. But can you set the stage for us? You know, this is, I think, maybe more important to the future of our country and our world than anything else. It's not something that I'm hearing the president talk about, not hearing many leaders talk about, but just as a starting point, we talked to Tom Colicchio about 
how the restaurant industry has been hit. Um, we've talked to Jeffrey Wright about how the entertainment industry has been hit. We talked to David Aldridge about how sports has been hit. So can you frame it up for us, please, Anya? How has education been impacted by the pandemic in your view so far? So at the height of this pandemic, 95% of children out of, around the world were out of school. Um, so we'll just start there. That has never happened before it's in the history of formal education. It's never happened in a rich country unless you count London during the Blitz. And that was pretty abbreviated and was just London. And they sent a lot of those kids out of London. So in terms of every rich country, every city, every place, this has not happened before. Um, and the interruption we do know from looking at smaller scale disruptions like Katrina, I'm a New Orleans native. So like we know that it has an enormous impact. So even just a few weeks of being out of school can lead to months down the road. It can take years for kids to make up the learning that they lose, not just because school is closed, but because it's a society wide disaster and there's economic disruption, there's political disruption, sometimes social unrest. So yeah, it's massive. And we are not talking about it as much as we need to because education serves so many important functions in our society and for our kids. Mm. And in, in, in America, are, is there anything that's particularly acute or unique or underreported? Um, I want to talk to you about what the future could look like, but right now, um, can you identify, you know, can, can you answer that and talk about what's unique about America right now, but also where do you see the most urgent need? You know, is, is it PPE? Is it structural? Is it technology? Is it funding? You know, where do you see the most urgent on-fire hotspot in education, right? Or hotspots in education right now? Gosh, I mean, it's hard to know where to start because um, the first consideration that stopped people from shutting down schools, and here in New York City, for example, probably we waited longer than we should have because people were wor worried about what are kids going to eat? So we have this shameful situation where we have 30 million children that rely on federal food assistance through the school lunch program. And, you know, and now school lunch workers and lunch ladies have been turned into frontline workers giving out food. Um, and so that's been an incredible pivot by an organization that nobody thought was capable of that kind of innovation, right, in such a short period of time. But it's not enough. And we know that kids aren't getting the food that they need because their parents are afraid to leave the house or they're worried because they're undocumented or a million other reasons. Um, I, I think probably the thing that hits home the most for me, because, um, you know, I think every reporter gets used to the idea that, you know, there's people like me and there's people not like me. And as a, as a responsible reporter, you want to tell the stories of the people not like me, but then you go home and everything's safe and great. That's not how it is right now. Because every single child, including your children, if you have them, my child, my children, we are all going through what's called an adverse childhood experience. It's a traumatic experience in the lives of our kids. No matter how good we are at mitigating that, it's a collective tra trauma that our kids are going through. And so coming to terms with that, what that means, and also the fact that it's just so wide across the entire society, it, it should take time and resources and energy. Um, but that is coming up against what's likely to be a terrible funding environment um, as our schools start to go back into session. So that's something that worries me a lot. So we focus a lot in this show, Anya, about leadership. And I've been extremely critical of the Secretary of Defense, Esper, and the Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Wilkie, for being invisible, for being reactive. I don't think that they have a national strategy to fall under from the president. 
But as I have this discussion in, prepara in preparation for this discussion for with you, the person who seems even more invisible is the Secretary of Education. Like, I don't see Betsy DeVos up there. I see the MyPillow CEO, and I see the CEO of CVS. And for a long time, we didn't see the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Defense. We kind of see them once in a while now. But I don't think I've seen Betsy DeVos a single time uh, at the lectern in the White House. Maybe I missed it. But, but can you talk about... Um, you know, this is a defining moment for her. She's been under fire from all sides. Uh, mm -hmm. In my view, she's, she's really ripped toward uh, in the veterans and, and, and uh, underprivileged community around uh, defending uh, bad actors in, in the for-profit space at, at the expense of the GI Bill, for example. But yeah. what's your view? Where is she? And, and, uh, and how do you think she's, she's doing? And what could she be doing? Or what, she, what could she be asked to do by the president that maybe she's not being even directed or asked to do right now? So the unique situation with this secretary is that her entire career has been about alternatives to public education. She does not believe in public education. She believes in charter schools, private schools, religious schools, vouchers, and homeschooling. That is what she cares about. That is what she talks about. That is what she funds with her own money. And so the paradox of having someone in charge of um, public schools who doesn't care about, who doesn't like public schools or believe in public schools. I mean, it's kind of like putting an oil executive in charge of the EPA. Right. Um, right? Right. Uh, so, you know, it's not, it's not unprecedented for this administration, but now at this moment, you see that, um, you know, her, her voice is very muted and when she does come out with things, she had a pet policy that she put out last weekend, very small amount of money out of the very small amount of money that was allocated to schools in the rescue package. Um, and it's for micro schooling, which is money to parents to basically encourage them to continue homeschooling. Now, I would love a cash grant, I'm sure, you know, to buy more blocks and more science stuff. And I'm sure this is like a popular idea, but our schools need hundreds of billions of dollars to be able to operate and to take what they're, what they're taking on now is this remote learning project out of nowhere, getting kids the devices that they need, getting them the connectivity that they need, planning for the teachers, training for the teachers. Now they're looking at potentially summer school. Now they're looking at extending the school day so that they can have two shifts of school so that they can um, make class time, class sizes smaller to stop the spread of the pandemic. So this is a major, major undertaking. And, and, what we're missing is a champion of public schools who could get out there and say, this is the money that we need and I will fight for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a fan of Arne Duncan and I'm, I'm an independent, you know, but, but I loved how Arne Duncan always seemed to be a champion for students or a champion, or at least made you think about it. Right. The, the, the saying in the veterans affairs department was always that uh, the secretary of VA, VA was supposed to stand for veterans advocate and you're supposed to advocate for all veterans in the whole world, not just the ones that use your hospitals. And I feel like Arnie Duncan, I remember him playing in the, in the celebrity NBA game, right? And during All-Star Weekend, he was out doing the talk shows. He was making you think about education. And, and DeVos has been kind of one of those quiet, um, behind-the-scenes slashers, in my view, like, and, and, and really experimenting and or damaging many of our critical components of government that now we need so much. But, but what, what she hasn't been doing, in my view, is just making us think about it. Right. We're thinking about if you have kids or you care about kids, but there's not that forced conversation. But the piece that has emerged is Trump always finds, you know, a populist thing to, to slash at. And he, he picks Harvard. Right. And he says, OK, Harvard got too much money. But we are now functioning in an environment, whether you believe in them or not, where private schools of all kinds seem like they're under pressure. 
if you don't have a big endowment, if you're dependent upon uh, revenue from housing and room and board. So Anya, in your view, what does the future of uh, colleges look like, private colleges in America, and all the way cascading down to you know, the elite private schools in, in New York City? Um, you know, are, are we gonna see a, a wave of collapses and bankruptcies among uh, private institutions? One that I know about that was near my alma mater, Hampshire College, among many others that may shut their doors because they can't sustain themselves anymore at a time when the education cost is, is, is going higher and higher and higher. So, what does the future of college and private education look like in your view? So it's a little funny for me to be in this position because I wrote a book about the changing pace of higher education 10 years ago. And I went out as an advocate, um, really just trying to explain to people what I saw as the huge pressures on this sector. And here we are 10 years later, it kind of took a while for the iceberg to hit, but this really is such an incredible convergence of not only, it's not only the financial pressures on colleges, it's not only the uncertainty of whether and when they can return to offer that in-person experience, but it's, you know, they've forcibly driven the entire higher education system online and how many students are going to decide that that's where they want to be or that's where they want to stay. You know, whether it's out of choice or necessity or a combination of both, you know, the, the colleges that are going to come out of this looking really good are the ones that already know how to educate students at scale online, and give them a relatively good experience. And there's a handful of institutions that fit that bill. I mean, I'm thinking about Southern New Hampshire University, Arizona State University, uh, Western Governors University, all of which come at it from different angles. So you have a state university that pivoted, you have a startup nonprofit, and you have a um, brick and mortar of private campus that was really totally transformed by a visionary president into this behemoth online. And so they can scale and scale and scale. They don't have any physical limitations. And so why wouldn't students go to those online situations if they don't know whether and when they can safely return to their campuses? So I think that it's going to be extremely detrimental and a real cold winter, you know, for these universities. If I were looking at it from a leadership standpoint, I would say, what do we need out of this sector? What do we really need um, to be able to do and be able to provide? Obviously, we need healthcare workers. We need to be able to train an incredible number of healthcare workers in the next year, year and a half. Um, probably it's community colleges that have the capacity to do that. There's a huge clinical hands-on component to a lot of healthcare work. So you can't do it all online. You can do some of the coursework online, but you have to have a practicum and be there in person. So those relationships are really strong. Um, then, uh, you know, obviously there's a research component, the medical research, basic scientific research. A lot of times that needs to go on in person. So how do we continue to fund those basic, basic efforts? Um, and paradoxically, uh, one of the uh, articles I was reading recently compared this time in terms of its stress and pressure in the existing system to the GI Bill. Because the GI Bill exploded the number of students and completely overwhelmed the existing structure. And you had to build huge numbers of new campuses to accommodate it. Well, this is a destructive force, but it's still destructive change. And there are going to be definitely institutions that adapt and expand as well as ones that drop out. Anya, do you think it's going to deepen the cleavage that exists between the rich and the poor in that, you know, when I went to college, you know, it was an entirely intimate experience, a small liberal arts school where we played on the football team and you had club sports and you had a central dining hall and cultural houses when everybody was on top of each other. And th those schools like Amherst and Harvard and all the others are going to have to adjust. Um, but is it going to be a situation where it's going to be more expensive for them and the only ones who are going to be able to have that kind of white glove 
opportunity are going to be the wealthiest and the ones that can, you know, get knee blind admission, that sort of thing. And, and many other folks are going to end up at University of Phoenix. I mean, what, how do you see that unfolding? Um, and I'm also wondering, you know, are we going to see, see a wave of bankruptcies in your opinion? Like it feels like we're starting to see retail giants go down. Neiman Marcus just went down. Uh, Virgin Airways went down. Is there, are we going to wake up and find out that, you know, Colgate is gone or, or that, uh, you know, Brown University is gone? Is, is there going to be somebody that, that is going to surprise us that you think could, could collapse in, in the next year or two? So I, I do think there's going to be financial collapses. I think there's going to be mergers and closures within state systems. I think one of the biggest places where there's authority to close, right, is these kinds of state systems where you have two or three regional college systems and they're kind of overlapping and there's another college 50, 50 miles down the road. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if some of those start to collapse a little bit or merge, merge slash, you know, close down. Um, you know, colleges tend to be the largest employers in their regions and in their small towns. And so they have a huge base of support for that reason, as well as being part of the tax base, although it depends because they're nonprofits. But, um, you know, so people have been wrong before in predicting confidently the collapse of hundreds of institutions um, on the order of hundreds. But I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, quite a few bankruptcies and closures and maybe some that we wouldn't expect to see. Mm. Um, Anya, we ask this of, of all our guests. I mean, you are a, an incredibly objective journalist. You're a thought leader, but you're also a parent. You're a New Yorker. You're surrounded by the pandemic. And, and I think you're also positively influencing the response, but everybody's had a different kind of emotional response. And we ask every guest, and I'll, I'll ask you, you know, Anya Kamenetz, I'm, I'm, your, your last name is so tough. I know you know this, but Kamenetz, right? Am I getting that right? Anya Kamenetz, uh, what makes you angry? I'm getting really angry now at the way that people try to adjust their view of what's happening in order to wall themselves off from the humanity of other people, including the people that are literally keeping us alive from day to day. I think that the way people cope, and I understand this, is they close their circle of empathy. Um, and they say, well, these are the people I care about. These are people like me. And these are the people I don't care about, the people that are not like me. But the more I hear people talking about reopening and talking about what about the economy, the more I'm like, you have, you, you have eliminated from your mind the possibility that you might be one of the people that's vulnerable and you want to psychologically cut yourself off from, from vulnerability. And that's a fear-based reaction, you know? So I get, I get angry at it. I also just wish that people could talk about it and think about it a little bit more, you know? You, Anya, you wrote, a, you wrote a fabulous piece about what schools uh, may look like in the future, right? I think it was a nine-point plan, right? Um, you know, we don't even know, maybe, you know, some states will reopen in the next week or so and push kids back into school and they may have to draw back on that later. But, it, you know, it's a new normal. It's a totally new landscape on everything from class size to scheduling. But you had a really thoughtful summary of what you think the future of education will look like in America. Can you, can you summarize that for folks and give us a sense of what the future could look like? I mean, the basic principle from a pandemic control situation is that you need to have smaller groups of students interacting with fewer other people. So if you want to get class sizes down to 10 to 12 with just one teacher, um, and that's reasonable given the space in a lot of schools, 
that means a radical restructuring of the school day and the school year. So you might have some students uh, attending on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, others on a Tuesday, Thursday, kind of a block schedule. You might have morning and afternoon shifts. There are different ways of doing that. Um, you also might want to extend the school calendar to make up for some of the time um, that students are losing with that limited class time. Um, then uh, if you're doing all of that, you know, this is a cascading set of effects. If you're doing all of that, you're probably also continuing remote learning because the students that are home Tuesday, Thursday, they're working on the projects that they were assigned Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and vice versa. Um, and the remote learning is also going to continue because um, we're going to continue to have shutdowns. There's going to be future waves of the pandemic leading to school closures. That'll be a leading edge thing that, that people will do when infections start rising again. So, so just like we have snow days or we have tornadoes, we're going to have a pandemic closure. Um, and that'll be part of the school routine. And the online learning will then continue and be ex expected to continue as an alternative. And also just if parents don't feel like sending their kids to school because they're worried or they're scared, um, they're going to want to have that online alternative as well. And then the, the, the other really important point, and I mentioned this before, Paul, but just that schools are really realizing right now what their core function and mission is. And I know a lot of educators already knew this, but everyone needs to understand that their role is social and emotional as much as it is educational. And so helping students cope, wrap around services, connect to the things that they need, and that emotional help is going to be paramount in this recovery process. Mm. Also, I think paramount, Anya, is the role that, that we're asking the teachers to play. And yeah, yeah, I feel like after school shootings, we had this new appreciation for teachers. Um, but now it seems to almost have waned a little bit, you know, and maybe it's all over the place. Some people are having fantastic online learning experiences. Some aren't. Um, but I keep thinking about, you know, my son is four and a half. He's in a pre-K program. They've done a great job of adjusting. But I keep looking at his teachers in the morning and thinking about how, you know, for me and my wife, we're, we're kind of like 60% capacity on, on we're at 60% productivity on parenting and maybe 50% on our business. And it's like this, you know, balancing act that we're all trying to do. Um, but, but I'm really worried about teacher burnout, right? And, and the emotional toll you, you, you wrote or, or tweeted about uh, a teacher that died from COVID-19. You know, these people are frontline essential workers too, but I feel like that's not a, not a part of everyone's consideration. When they're outside cheering at, at 7 a.m., 7 p.m., they're not cheering for teachers. So um, can you talk about, you know, what kind of pressures you see them facing right now, how we can support them? And also, is there is there a silver lining here? Like with forcing innovation, it seems like some, some levels we're getting back to basic. We have a greater appreciation of the teachers, but structurally within the education system, is there, is there a positive aspect to this that can emerge? So that's a, that part is always really tricky for me. And I think because I do have a track record of kind of espousing innovation, but it always comes with a human cost and with trade-offs. And, you know, this is not an opportunity. It's an emergency, right? That's, that's the number one. Um, and nobody asked for this, nobody wants this. At the same time, I do hear and see teachers and educators every day making meaning out of this disaster. And the meaning that they're making out of it is, I can learn new ways of teaching. I can operate in different ways. I can offer you know, therapies to kids over the internet that I couldn't do before. And, and forming these relationships, frankly, like the, the head of the um, AFT in New York City, Michael Mogler told me, my teachers, they now see their kids' uh, pets and their siblings, and they see inside their homes, and this strength of the relationship is being forged in that way is really unique, and it's, it's a strength that can be leveraged when we start to knit the whole thing back together. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think a lot more parents are caring about what t- who teachers are and what they do. I see it in my work at NPR that there's a lot more appetite for these kinds of stories because all of a sudden the people that make the news as well as everyone who listens to it understand just how freaking hard it is to keep our kids focused and engaged for a seven hour school day. And the fact that they managed to do it at all, you know, it is a miracle. And, you know, but I don't want to be Pollyanna about it because it's all heading into these headwinds of these crazy state budgets. And, you know, these same teachers might be facing pay cuts when they get back to work. This is like, this is a battle. It's not something that's going to like automatically translate into accolades for teachers. Right. Um, and I, I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think it feels like a battle for parents every day now, a different kind of battle. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, you know, even if, if you have kids, this is very different. If you have little kids, this is very different, right? And that's where I find myself with a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and we both have startup businesses for me and my wife. So I don't know if I've ever gotten less sleep in my life. I don't know if I've ever been more exhausted in my life. And that's not an exaggeration by any means. Like, we, we, we're spent. Um, and at the same time, we spent four and a half years teaching my son to be social, to look people in the eye, to shake hands, uh, and fighting the screen, right? Not getting him on screen time. And now screen time is up. I don't know. You, you can tell us probably 500%, 600%. You're also an expert on screen time. So can you break down for, uh, not just for parents, but for grandparents, for anyone who cares about children, you know, mm-hmm. how... Maybe maybe you can give an insight on how much more screen time kids are getting mm-hmm. and and your thoughts on it. Should we be worried about it? Should we not be worried about it? Just overall, I think you've been a real voice of reason in, in, in understanding this. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on all that, Anya? So we, we have seen a 70% jump in the first few weeks in children's screen time, in, in traffic to children's sites and apps. Um, so that's very real. And it's probably much more in some circumstances. Um, I, I have a three-year-old, so I you know definitely sympathize. And an eight-year-old who's been playing too much Roblox. Um, in my book, The Art of Screen Time, I really ask parents to focus not on time limits per se, but on the circumstances of their consumption. And so what we want to be vigilant about for ourselves and our kids is the relationship to the media that we're using. And that means is media a source of conflict in the home? Is it a source of tantrums? Is it the only thing my kid wants? Does my kid, is my kid totally devoid of the ability to amuse themselves for 10 for 20 minutes on their own? Now, sometimes they're going to be needy and clingy and let's not forget again, this is a stressful situation. They need you. They need your presence. Um, but what I ask parents to kind of strive for is the rhythm where you try to fill up their cup with a little bit of attention and then you try to get them to work on their own and you keep the screen time for when you really need it. And sometimes we really need it. Mm. Um, but build that rhythm into your day and build that rhythm and that balance. And also to understand that screens are different things at different times. Right now our screens are everything, right? And a live chat with a grandparent or a Zoom play date or even something interactive like a, a dance class or um, you know a music uh, a music class or lesson is all better than the the passive consumption screen time. It's it's getting them a little more alive, a little more engaged. So the more that you can tilt toward that live engagement, the better it's going to be. But give yourselves a break. Like this is harm reduction time. This is not time to be a perfect picture of anything. And our kids also forgive us when we screw up, when we are distracted, when we are on our phones. You know, we can have a family conversation about it and say, you know, mom's going to put her phone down and you put your tablet down and we're going to try to connect with each other. And 
and just do that for the, you know, it's five minutes at the end of the day, you know, your kids know that you're there for them. And, and that's what's important. Thank you for that, Anya. Um, when you, I, I heard you talk about how to recognize like burnout. Can you talk about that? Like, what do you look for? And, and once I heard you say it, 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 it kind of it set off a light in my head and watching for it. But can you describe, you know, how you can look for when, you know, too much, when it's too much? Yeah. So, I mean, doctors talk about problematic media use and they have a nine point scale problematic media use measure. And it basically is um, screens are the only thing my kid cares about. They have a threshold effect where they want more and more of it. Um, they, uh, they're sneaking around to use it. They're lying to use it, staying up late, getting up early. Um, they are fighting and yelling and screaming when it's taken away. They, uh, everything else is falling by the wayside. They're not interested in friends or family or schoolwork. Um, and so, you know, these are pretty basic kind of behavioral addiction things. Um, again, we're in a time where we need a self-soother and we need, um, a coping mechanism and kids are going to kind of work with what they've got. Younger kids might have, might be thumb suckers or they might be regressing in other ways. And a screen can kind of be in that role as well. So just kind of looking for that pattern and thinking it's not the emotional neediness. That's the problem. We all have tough emotions, especially now. The problem is what kind of coping mechanisms do we use? What are the tools in our toolbox? Hmm. One of the things I've tried really hard to do, and I'm not perfect at it is to actually watch what they're watching. Yeah. yeah, right. It makes a big difference. Like my wife and I have had discussions about Thomas the Train versus Tumbleleaf, right? And yeah. like, you know, I watch some shows and I say, "Wow, you know, like I love I love Tumbleleaf. Tumbleleaf is positive and it's diverse and the music's great. And it doesn't make me want to bang my head against the wall." Yeah. And then you know, there 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 are things like PJ Mask which feel like an explosion in my brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm trying to watch it and think about it with him and talk about it with him. Um, but is there content that you recommend one like uh, Khan Academy for kids, the smaller kids I've really been impressed by, but there's a gamification of the education. Are there any, um, resources or even content that you would recommend that you think is, is high quality or premium? Um, so, so, uh, Commons Media has put together a website called Wide Open School which is a really nice curated selection of everything from like science videos to math exercises and games. And um, it's really nicely curated, which is the key because it's so overwhelming right now. Um, a resource that I recommend is Go Noodle, which is a lot of like physical activities for kids, which is really good to kind of shake things up. Also, they have meditation videos, which are really nice. Um, in the realm of apps, um, I'm a fan of uh, Tokoboka because they do these kind of like non-linear apps that aren't gamified. They're kind of just more exploratory. Um, and Tiny Bop as well is a similar kind of like explorer world type of app. And um, the other thing that I kind of is overlooked is like going on a little YouTube journey with your kids. If there's a particular animal that they're interested in or a vehicle or anything from the natural world, you have to be with them to do this because YouTube's algorithm is evil. But if you are and you can look together at videos and have a little nature walk, um, I think that can be a really fun thing to do. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, uh, folks who are listening are going to be looking them all up afterward. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But I like the, the part about being on a kind of guided tour together. Um, my son and I, both kids now, we, we did a, a, an experiment where we basically found a new sport each day and found out about the history of cricket then we watched some cricket, then we built a cricket bat, then we played cricket and tried to take it 
you know, um, URL to IRL, like into real life as best as possible. It was hard as hell, but <laughs> you know, being on that journey. But at the same time, I mean, it's really hard. One of the things I've tried to do is block my son from commercials. I mean, I will, I will pay a little more. I will go a little farther to get content that isn't uh, infiltrated with commercials. But then the other thing I did, and, and again, I don't have shit figured out, but I'm trying to help him make sense of this, is when he does see an ad, I ask him, what are they selling? And it's become a game where, you know, he says, oh, they're selling me, you know, uh, shirts. And I'm like, no, it's a vacation. Or, you know, uh, they're trying to sell me a car. I'm like, no, it's erectile dysfunction. Like there, there's, you know, all these different elements, right? Um, but, but it's a really dicey time. So is, is there any advice you have um, to protect ourselves against the infiltration of the advertising, not just for kids, but for everyone who's spending more time on screens now? I think that's a great question. I mean, I hear about this in terms of advertising, also in terms of like misinformation and disinformation, which can be a problem with teenagers as well as adults. Um, you know, I really kind of just, uh, I think starting that process of self-inquiry like you're doing with your kid is really important and figuring out, you know, what are the, what are the values that are being put across here, whether it's a consumerist thing or whether it's a message that, you know, we don't agree with. Um, and, and really kind of poking at that and helping them understand, like, wh- let's get curious about this. What are they asking us to do? Um, you know, that's on the consumption side. I think critically speaking, like, I do tell my kids I prefer that they're watching scripted media and subscription-based media because we have the budget for that um, rather than, which is ad-free, like whether it's Netflix or something else, rather than just YouTube videos because they're always constantly interspersed with ads. And I also prefer to pay for um, apps online because of the same reason. Mm. Um, you seem to have like a solidarity with your kids. You changed your hair color. I don't know if that was, was that what, can you talk, can you talk about that? <laughs> and, uh, and also the other question I want to ask you is the thing that I'm wrestling with, and I know many parents are wrestling with is yeah. maybe the most disturbing content that I see on a regular basis is the president. And uh-huh. he is everywhere. Um, my son now has opinions about Donald Trump and he knows his voice. He recognizes his, 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 his face. Um, you know, I grew up under Ronald Reagan and then with, with Bill Clinton and they were everywhere that the president is everywhere, but now, you know, maybe even more so, and maybe even more disturbing. So I'll give you the easy question and then the hard one. So talk about your hair color change, if you would, please. <laughs> Because uh, I am by no means any expert on hair, and then what are your thoughts on how do you how do you talk to your kids about a president who who tells you know who's nasty and, and and is mean and is vindictive and curses and all these other things? And I've tried to make him the anti-example. I say, don't be like him. I say, yeah. he's the bad kid yeah. in class. Don't be that guy. But but what what are your thoughts on that very wandering and difficult question? <laughs> it's rough. That's rough. Okay, hair is much easier. So. Listen, all the salons are closed. I don't have to do any keynote addresses. All my travel this spring was canceled. So I decided to have the hair that I wanted when I was 13. Um, and I did do my daughter's hair too. So that was really fun. Folks who are listening, can you describe yeah. the color? <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, sorry. So it's like, it's a little bit of a mermaid, my little pony situation with some teal and some purple, a little bit of lavender. Yeah. It's awesome. That, that's exactly what it is. It's like the My Little Pony lavender and, and blue. Yeah, and you have a unicorn. Also, I do. I do. I saw that yeah. when you're getting ready, which I, I've never seen on the wall. 
Which I, <laughs> really well, cool. they're illegal now. This was this is um, you know before the hunting regulations came in. So. <laughs> okay, so we are all uh, you know who knows what the president's going to make illegal tomorrow. But what? Do, but how do you deal with him being everywhere? So the research has shown that there is a change in bullying patterns since the president came into office, as far as people parroting children in school parroting his rhetoric his racist rhetoric and anti-immigrant rhetoric and using that to bully other kids in school. So this is a very real thing, um, very influential. And the way that I talk to my kids about the news, first of all, I don't play the news in the background. I don't play the radio or the television in the background. We don't have a television. Um, So I try to filter and I still have young kids so I can do that. But it doesn't mean they don't know about it because they do see the New York Times and they see things around. So I do talk to them about we're going to look for the helpers in every situation. And we don't really talk about bad guys. There's bad guys on TV, but bad guys is not a real thing in the real world. You have people who make bad choices. They make bad choices for lots of reasons. Um, One of the reasons we talked about last night was like stereotypes, like stereotypes being beliefs that people have about other groups of people. And again, this goes back to dehumanizing and not understanding that everybody's a human being. So you know, some of this comes from my kids, like Sunday school. Some of it comes from their grandparents. Some of it comes from us. This is moral instruction and moral instruction. There's a level of moral development where you, who, whatever is the person in charge is doing is okay. Right. That's, that's kind of an authoritarian moral development. And I believe, and I think philosophers say that like a higher level of moral development is I, I read and I think and I listen and I decide for myself what is right and what is true, regardless of what the people in power say, you know? Yeah. And so pushing our kids along into that level of moral development is where we all want to be one day, which is everybody's connected, everybody's a human being, everybody has an equal right to exist in this planet, and people who don't think that are just, they're mistaken. Mm. Mm. I, I love that. I'm, that's one of the many things I'm going to take with me in my backpack after this conversation. <laughs> um, because I remember on the playground when the, the teachers told us that uh, superheroes were not allowed because uh, it created the good guy, bad guy division, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, nobody wanted to be the bad guy. Uh, mm-hmm. and, or the person who didn't want to get the bad guy was ganged up on. So it created, you know, I've really tried to resist superheroes because that, that's such a delineation and there is such a world of gray. Um, but that's a really, really thoughtful approach that I, I really, really appreciate. I want to ask you one um, last question that, that's just deep in the education world. Graduations are, are happening now or not happening now. Uh, yeah. The president, in my view, has recklessly decided to bring the entire senior class of West Point back to New York in the middle of a pandemic, risking um, not just their health, but I think our national security. Like ISIS would love to have uh, a thousand of our future officers in one place at risk, and he's doing it voluntarily, which is really disruptive. Um, I think the Air Force and the Coast Guard did distance uh, graduations where they were spread out. The, uh, I think the Naval Academy has, has done it virtually. Um, can you talk just about what this time is like? This is a time when people had been thinking for their entire lives that they were going to walk down an aisle and the grandpa was going to hug them afterward, and that's all blown up now. So your thoughts on, I mean, humanity is a great way of evolving and adapting, but it's also traumatic, right? And I think a real sense of loss in the same way funerals are. I remember somebody saying to me when I graduated from college, and I was not that excited at the time, or said, it's not for you, it's for everybody who helped you. 
and, yeah. and they don't have that shared experience right now. So what are your thoughts on graduation right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I've been spending some time talking to teenagers all over the country uh, about their experiences. And so it's about the high school graduation experience. But being denied that milestone is incredibly heart-wrenching and just deflating, you know, especially when you think about the kids that work so hard for those degrees and maybe it took them several years or they're off the regular path. And, and being denied that is just, it's so, so hard. But you know, I'm also just hearing an incredible amount of maturity and acceptance from these young people. You know, we have to realize that for millions of young people who have been taking the the advice to self-quarantine, not because they think they're going to be personally at risk, and statistically they're not, they're doing it for others. And it's this incredible act of selflessness and national service, and they're not being recognized enough for it. You know, not only are we stealing their dreams, stomping on their futures, but we're not even honoring what they're doing in the moment to help their parents and their grandparents. And if there's one thing I hope, Paul, you know, is that like, I, you know, I've been out there speaking for and on behalf of young people since I was a young person myself um, with Generation Debt, like 14 years ago. And are we finally done trashing kids for, you know, what they're not doing instead of recognizing what we're doing to them? Yeah, I think, you know, there's been this, this like Fox News dismissal of millennials, right? And, uh, you know, all millennials. Which, by the way, we're 40 years old now. So millennials, you can, you can <laughs> right. put that away. Right, 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 right. And I, I mean, it's, it's it, the way to pierce that most effectively in my world is like, hey, you know, there's a lot of millennials in Afghanistan right now on their fifth tour, right? And many of them responded after 9-11 and after Katrina and again now. And um, somebody once, once told me that the World War II generation built this country. The Vietnam generation fucked it up, and it was on our generation to save it. <laughs> but I feel like it's even passed over us, and, and our kids have this opportunity to rebuild this new world. Um, and, and I think they're so inspiring, and, and they have this sense of service that's so much greater than, than I think when we were in high school and in past times. But you are always a source of positivity and of inspiration. So, Anya, I want to ask you a question I also ask of, of all of our guests. What makes you happy? I mean, being with my kids makes me happy, seeing the joy that they take in the smallest things around them, and just in being together. I, I have now um, issued a mandatory follow-up, because I love that everyone always responds with that. But in, <laughs> in, addition, <laughs> in, in addition to family, what yes. is, you know, you've got unicorns, you're, 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 you're interested in a lot of things, but what's something else that brings you joy and, and, and makes you happy? So since the pandemic started, I've been rediscovering the daily run, and I did a uh, a virtual half marathon last weekend. And so that, yeah, n I could say that it brings me joy, but what I really am saying is that if I skip a day, I am crushed and my whole day is ruined. So I'm just kind of addicted to running. That's kind of how it is right now. How, can you explain to folks who maybe don't, running in New York City is is like literally like I envisioned the movie 1917 when the guy's running through a mine like through a, through a battlefield right because you're watching out for other people you maybe got a mask on or you don't but like you, you know you're a social scientist you know you 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 understand this the the the, the, the human experience what's it like running in New York City right now. Well, you have to be careful about where you go. Um, I Greenpoint's on the industrial border of Brooklyn. So I have a route that takes me like over around construction sites and cemeteries and over the Pulaski Bridge um, and in some very like not very frequented areas. So in exchange for inhaling little diesel fumes, I get my road to myself. 
I love it. Um, last question in this in this space. I just want to ask: uh, what, what should folks look for or look to? We always ask our uh, uh, the folks in our community to stay vigilant. Um, where would you direct their attention to in the next couple of weeks and, and next couple of months that, that your expertise gives you unique insight into? Um, well, what I would like to see happen and what I think you know, is as a condition of America getting back to work, something has to be done with our children. And so then the question becomes, how is that going to be done? Is it going to be done um, you know, kind of under the table and in cash and with a lot of gig workers and people whose safety is not taken care of? Or is there going to be some kind of push to adequately um, retain and keep people safe that are taking care of our kids? Because we, we're not going to get back to work without childcare. So somehow we got to square that circle. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's really important. Everybody's saying get back to work, and that's easy if if you don't think about the kids, <laughs> because yeah. uh, the the schools. Uh, I mean, I don't even know how a public high school in New York City would do ten kids in a classroom. I mean, the, the you know the, you've thoughtfully you know worked that through, but just it, it's just another element of the incomplete plan that's come from this White House and, and at a national level. Are there any? Um, international examples that seem to be working well or show signs of hope? I mean, New Zealand is now claiming that they've beaten the virus and they've won, but any international examples that you think are particularly noteworthy? I mean, Denmark's, uh, as I noted in my piece, has been opening back up with their schools, starting with the younger kids first. Um, Israel started with the special education classrooms, which are already smaller classrooms, and those are kids who need specialized attention, so I thought that was a smart way to go about it. Um, we do see that Chinese classrooms are starting to open up again, getting students in to study for the all-important um, uh, high-stakes exam that they take, um, which was postponed this year. And so, you know, they're doing the basics. They're doing masks. They're doing temperature checks. They're doing hand washing and guidelines. I think the really unanswered question in all these cases is what is the social realm of school look like? Can kids play six feet apart? What do those relationships look like? Um, but, uh, you know, so it's going to be a watch and learn type of situation for sure. Mm. Um, Anya, you have been such a powerful voice of insight um, and inspiration. I think especially in, in times like this. I mean, I, I was uh, telling my wife that we were having this conversation and she just, I can't wait to hear what she has to say. I really feel like you're a leader of the moment and all of these contributing factors and books you've written are kind of coming together um, in a position where you can really powerfully lead and guide and even soothe this country. So I, I want to really just thank you for that. Um, and it, we can't do it in real life, but it is time for the presentation of the gifts. So I'm going to virtually present to you some gifts. So the, uh, first off, you've got some swag coming your way. Yay! Angry American Year, um, made by the veterans of Oscar Mike. So I'm going to do this virtual thing to throw it to you. Here you go. All right. And it's, it's coming over. Um, and then we're going to also send you the, the sponsors of the show, Bravo Sierra, made in the USA. They support veterans as well. We've got antibacterial wipes that nice. if you can't get a shower in after your run, you can use those um, <laughs> if you're juggling little kids like I know you are. Um, and then since you said you're a fan of bourbon, we always pick a unique uh, American-made whiskey for No way! So this is oh my, my God, awesome. This is my paying it forward. This is Jeffrey Wright's. Um, whiskey company, uh, nice. uncle, uncle nearest. And if folks are listening, you know, the story, Jeffrey Wright, um, has hooked up with, with the amazing story of uncle nearest, who's basically 
um, the unrecognized former slave who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. Oh so my God. Jack Daniels didn't that just so magically cool. come up with whiskey. The Uncle Nearest story <laughs> tells it. So we got a bottle of their 1884 small batch coming your way because I am so uh, excited. Uncle, Uncle Nearest was an educator and you are an educator. <laughs> and then lastly, the great Rorschach test of angry Americans. We have three uh, colors of peeps, yellow, oh. pink, and blue. Um, which color would you pick and why, Anya? So my husband's the peep eater in the family. He's a really, he likes to rip them open and let him get a little stale and chewy before he eats them. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm going to go for pink because I think I just, he just needs to like tweak, tweak himself a little bit. I've got a bonus for you. Because it yeah. was Easter and I found these in my son's Easter, a lot of folks <laughs> in the show have been telling me about the special ones. There's like jalapeno and red yeah. hot. Apparently it's also party cake. So ah! I'm going to send oh it. Oh my God. If I can. It might take six months to get there in the pandemic. Perfect. It'll be perfectly stale by then. Thank you. I'm serious. He's going to be so happy. He loves a stale peep. That's his favorite uh, snack. Well, he's got now, you know, over 50 episodes of interesting people talking about peeps. Um, but, but you have been a, a tremendous educator for this country about education. I don't think there's anything that's more important and arguably underreported. So, uh, Anya, it's, it's a real privilege to have had you on the show as my guest and to just know you and, and to root for you. We want to always have inspiring, um, uh, important Americans who are shaping what the country's been, what it is, and what it will be. And, and I thought of nobody that's more appropriate for this time than you. So thank you for all of your leadership and vision. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure. And it's been when it's so all over, yeah. so we can jump in that Camaro, we'll get some whiskey and go unicorn hunting. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> right. Ladies and gentlemen, the great and powerful Anya Kamenitz, uh, live from Brooklyn. Uh, follow her on Twitter, read all her books, and, and consume every piece of educational information that she is producing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Paul. All right, tough times require tough products and tough people. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you know about Bravo Sierra. Sometimes you want to simplify without sacrificing performance. And Bravo Sierra has highly effective, awesome grooming products that are non-toxic and stand the test of time for the most active lifestyles. They're perfect for the pandemic because Bravo Sierra has pioneered an unprecedented large-scale testing program that's based on 1,000 U.S. military service members and their communities. Simple idea. If the products work for these military folks, they'll work for everybody else. And Bravo Sierra gives back 5% of all sales to support programs for the active duty military, veterans, and their families. They're great products. You'll feel clean, look good, and smell great all day with products that are healthy, high quality, and affordable. Men's Health calls them a game-changing grooming line. I'm going to be sending them to Anya, and she can try their hair products on her new unicorn-colored hair. Uh, they are on their way to Jeffrey Wright. They're on their way to Jake Wood. They are already in the hands of Flo Groberg and many others. If you want to be ready for the pandemic and anything that comes forward, Bravo Sierra is your stuff. They've got a hygiene-ready set that you can try that's got the only two products you need to be clean and ready to go. It's got the solid cleanser to wash your hands, face, and body as frequently as needed, which should be very often. You should wash your hands, use the solid cleanser, and the antibacterial wipes, which are perfect when you have no access to water. If you're going out for a walk or a hike or you're in a I don't know, a place with a big family and you can't get to the shower, use an antibacterial wipe from Bravo Sierra and you will be hooked up. 
We are very proud to have them as our lead partner for this podcast. If you go to bravosierra.com right now, you can get the starter set for free. It's three of their best-selling products, the aluminum-free deodorant, the awesome hair and body wash solid cleansing bar, and the hair grooming cream. All you got to do is pay $6.95 for shipping for a limited time if you go to bravosierra.com backslash angryamericans. And if you buy anything else there, you get 15% off on all orders. They've also got an awesome face sunscreen uh, that I really think is great as the weather heats up and some lip balm. If you like lip balm, check it out. But it's bravosierra.com, bravosierra.com. They step up and support good causes and make incredible products that are perfect for times like this. Check out bravosierra.com and tell them Angry Americans sent you. There's plenty of reason out there to be angry. Even without school as we know it, there's reason to be hopeful. There's reason to come together. And there's reason to teach about calm and teach about impact. Because even more than the virus, even more than the stupid, calm is contagious. And so is good information. And if you keep your calm, wash your hands, run your wind sprints, eat your Wheaties, and especially as a nation at war, there's a way to make an impact. It's time to do your homework. And turn that anger, sadness, frustration, inspiration, and agony into positive impact. Class, it's time to be a helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers. You know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Every show, we offer a way to convert your righteous, understandable anger into positive action. A positive action that shows that angry Americans can also be impactful Americans. An action that channels your energy, makes you feel good, and makes a big difference. And like this show, our actions are always packed with the four eyes: Integrity, information, impact, and inspiration. For those about to lose their minds, we got to remember. That in the worst of times, we can make the best of times. And there's a way you can help the kids of America. Join a movement of teachers, chefs, community leaders, parents, lawmakers, and CEOs with a shared belief. No kid in America should go hungry. America's kids need us. Millions of vulnerable kids are losing healthy meals they depend on as the coronavirus closes schools nationwide. And no kid hungry has a plan to feed them. But they need your help. One billion meals. That's the number of meals at schools that kids in need have missed due to the closures. And no kid hungry is helping schools and community groups find new ways to feed those kids. But they need your support. So go to nokidhungry.org. Your support will help them on a number of levels. You'll help them work with federal and local governments to support children in need. They provide emergency grants to food banks and community groups. They send resources to help the hardest hit communities. They make sure families know how to find meals when schools are closed. And they continue their work to ensure that every kid gets three meals a day. And as the situation continues to evolve, they're tailoring their response to meet communities' changing needs. That's what No Kid Hungry does every day, both in times of crisis and not. Nearly 22 million kids rely on the meals they get at school. And with your help, they can continue to remove obstacles to get the kids the food they need. So support Hungry Kids with them now at nokidhungry.org. They've got a great website with lots of additional extra credit resources. So for parents, educators, community leaders, or people who just care, there's a look at what No Kid Hungry is doing during the coronavirus outbreak. 
You can support local restaurants also during the coronavirus. You can help the robust community of restaurants and culinary professionals that fuel No Kids Hungry's work by ordering from independent restaurants that support their work. And you can also visit the Independent Restaurant Coalition to learn more about their partnership. That's the same group run by our friend Tom Colicchio. They're also fighting hunger by protecting SNAP. SNAP is food stamps. More than ever, SNAP is needed to feed hungry families and the economy. And they're giving guidance for policymakers, schools, and local organizations. They have a full suite of resources. They have a full suite of resources that provide information about feeding kids during the pandemic, FAQs, tactical guides, and research. And they're providing support to places like the City School of Hammond, Indiana, in Massachusetts at Project Bread, to the Florence Township School District in New Jersey, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, where many students rely on school meals. They're out in Oakland at the Unified School District. They're at Hitchcock Independent Schools in Texas, in Pennsylvania at the Layton Area School District. They're also helping the Osage Prairie YMCA in the small town of Nevada, Missouri, and at Stillwater Public Schools in Oklahoma and Washington, D.C. They've got a full map and all the places that they're helping, and you can see exactly where your support helps feed kids nationwide. The outpouring of support has been great. But they need more help, more reinforcements, and more support from people like you. Go to NoKidHungry.org. Millions more kids need us. And you can help feed them now and into the recovery to come. Do your part. Help the helpers. And be a helper. Feed the kids. Not the new kids. Not the new kids on the block. They got plenty of food. And they got Wahlberg's burgers. But help the next generation of kids that are coming up. And help them stay home. And support No Kid Hungry. And after you do, join Naughty by Nature and the New Kids and dance. Turn it up. New Kids on the Block. Come on. If you got a story to tell or a resource to share, find us on social media. Use the hashtag AngryAmericans and let me know. Don't just be angry. Be active. All right, these shows during the pandemic have been a challenge, but I am so grateful for you for tuning in and for giving us all your time and for giving us your support. And I want to start out by thanking our Patreon members. We started a Patreon group and the Plank owners have established themselves. If you don't know, a Plank owner is an individual who is the member of a crew on a ship when it was first put into commission. So those first couple folks that help a ship get built, they get bragging rights on the ownership of the deck planks on the main deck. And we've got our plank owners, our first Patreon members who've stepped up. The Vigilant, Anthony Cerillo. want to thank Anthony for stepping up. Dan Renegade and Tim Fox. The three of you are the very first members of The Vigilant. And the very vigilant, our friend Mike Tipton, who continues to step up. Mike, thank you for your support. And the most vigilant, the very first to join the most vigilant, is Mark Reed, our friend Mark Reed. Thank you to all of you. Look for Angry Americans on Patreon. We'll also have a link to this description wherever you found this pod and at angryamericans.us. It's going to be fun. You get access to exclusive content, and we're going to continue to grow this. But I want to thank all those folks for stepping up to be the first. Also, a few other folks that helped make this episode happen. Anya Kamenitz, she's amazing. Please follow her on Twitter. Listen to her on NPR. Read all her books, especially The Art of Screen Time. There's no more important book for parents or really anybody who cares about kids or anybody who looks at a screen. Check it out, and please support Anya and all her really, really important work want to thank the rest of our team, the Righteous Media team. Mighty Mercy Rich is kind of like our class president and our business professor. Creative Chris Rosenthal, 
If we had an art teacher, he would be our art teacher. He's like the Bob Ross of Righteous. Bill Schultz, our amazing producer and the music teacher from heaven. He makes everything sound great and continues to teach me and everyone else. Our friends at Bravo Sierra, they always provide the reinforcements. Hooray, check out bravosierra.com backslash angry Americans. Use the code angry and you get 15% off. They have fantastic products that are very, very perfect for the pandemic. Also want to thank my friend Lori Stokes at Good Day New York. Uh, her dad's an Air Force vet, and she had me on Good Day New York last week to talk about what's happening to veterans in New York and nationwide. So my thanks to Lori and the whole team at Good Day New York. And also, big shout out to my friend, Brooke Baldwin. If you don't know, Brooke Baldwin is a fantastic anchor on CNN. Uh, She's been battling the coronavirus, and she is back. And here's a quick message she put out this week. I'll just close with this. You know, getting sick was awful, but hearing from thousands of you. Sharing your kindness and generosity with me through texts and emails and a lot of DMs on Instagram was the biggest gift I unexpectedly received these last few weeks. And it showed me how, even when the world stops and takes a collective breath, we are all capable of showing up for one another. I am so moved by the millions of you who have been willing to sacrifice so much in these last few weeks, all for the safety of your fellow Americans. I know it's tough, and it still is. When the world reopens for good, let's remember these more challenging times and remind ourselves we have the power to take care of one another. Brooke says she was one of the lucky ones, but she's also one of the good ones. She's always shown how much she cares about others, especially troops, vets, and first responders. Brooke has always had our back for over a decade, and she's always been a champion for the little guy and the little gal, always. And I know she's going to continue to lead and inspire, so welcome back, Brooke, and thank you for all your leadership. And my next thank you is an interesting one. I want to thank Richard Marks. If you don't know, Richard Marks has sold more than 30 million albums worldwide, starting with his self-titled debut, which went to number eight on the Billboard 200 chart. The album spawned four top five singles, including Hold On to the Nights, Don't Mean Nothing, which earned him a Grammy nomination for Best Male Rock Performance, and in his follow-up, Repeat Offender, was even more successful, hitting number one and going quadruple platinum with two number one singles, including Satisfied and Right Here Waiting. And he's since made history as the only male artist whose first seven singles reached the top five on the Billboard charts. So in addition to being a musician, Richard Marks is a philanthropist and he supported a lot of charitable causes, including the American Cancer Society and St. Jude. And very close to Richard's heart, the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, he's produced events and raised over $4 million for research. And he's very influential on Twitter, and he's occasionally extremely angry. And he retweeted one of my tweets this week. I couldn't have planned it. It made my night. I looked up, and Richard Marks had retweeted us. So I want to thank Richard Marks, and I want to invite him to be on this show anytime. We're a fan, sir. We appreciate your leadership, and I would love to chop it up with you and talk music, philanthropy, politics, and anything else you want. So if you guys want to follow Richard Marks on Twitter, let him know. Tell him we'd love to have him join us here on Angry Americans. 
And thank you to all of you for giving us so much time every week. I want to thank a few of you for listening. And I always want to hear from you. We do have a hotline. The number is 833-33-ANGRY, 833-33-ANGRY. You can give us a call. Let me know what you're seeing in your area. Let me know your suggestions on future guests. Let me know what's got you angry. But call and I'll make you famous. Call, tweet, or post on social and I will make you famous. I'll make you famous. Go ahead and do it. You'll be glad you did. Seriously, do it. Do it. Do it. All right, thank yous go out to a couple folks, including Marky Lanahan. She's out in Scottsdale, Arizona. She has a book recommendation, Man's Searching for Meaning by Viktor Frank. If you're struggling with mental health, she has the hotline number up there, 1-800-273-8255. But she's an advocate, and she's a fan of this show, and she said, Hey, Kyle Clark, not sure if you know of Paul Rykoff or if you listen to his podcast, but he mentioned you in this episode. It's a great podcast. I highly recommend it. But she's mentioning that uh, Kyle Clark is a journalist at Channel 9 News in Arizona, who I mentioned last episode in my Stakem segment. So big shout-out to Stakem's again. And big shout out to Mike Tipton, our friend Mike Tipton, who had a great suggestion. He said it would be awesome to have Joe Biden on Angry Americans. It would be a great place to discuss how he would be as commander in chief and how he would deal with the VA. I have met Vice President Biden in the past. He's been a tremendous advocate for veterans and the military. His son, Bo Biden, served in the Army in Iraq. uh, And he and Mrs. Biden have been great advocates for our community. They know what it's all about. And I would love to have him join us anytime. We'd have a lot to talk about. So great suggestion, Mike. Thanks for that. Thanks also to Anne-Marie Slack from Los Angeles. A lot of folks started chiming in when they saw that Richard Marks had retweeted, and we had a little exchange on Twitter, and it really poured out a ton of inspiration. And Anne-Marie said, this has to happen. Richard Marks has been calling out bullshit and living his truth. Please do an episode. And Lisa D. Dane from Vermont also chimed in and said, yes, we'll be right here waiting for you. Ha ha. Tracy Mikesell also chimed in from Washington. She is a shameless Seattle Seahawks and UW fan. uh, And she said, the best Twitter mashup on one of my favorite podcasts. Please make this happen. So the folks are asking for it. The people want it. And I think it needs to happen. Mr. Marks, I'm a fan. Please give the people what they want. We would be honored and thrilled. And of course, right here waiting for you. But thank you, Marky, Mike, Anne-Marie, Lisa, Tracy. You're all great students, great classmates. Thank you and keep the feedback coming. But I'm grateful to all of you. And I am as always grateful to my family, my wife and my two boys. You know, every day we wake up and say, today is going to be a great day. And no matter what happens, they continue to be tenacious. They continue to be happy. They continue to be open-minded. And they make our home an amazing place to be learning and for me to learn. Every day I learn from my kids and I learn from their school. And I want to give a big shout out to their teachers, to Bree and Giselle, who continue to be amazing for all the kids out there and to all the teachers. Thank you for all that you're doing, especially in times like this. You are essential workers and we appreciate all of you. Just like I appreciate you, dear listener, for tuning in. Please keep pushing out this podcast. Please keep bringing the calm. 
please keep bringing a positive attitude to me and to others and tell your friends to check this podcast out. If you're on an Apple device, leave the show a quick review, subscribe now, and we will have it waiting for you on Thursday nights. That's when they're coming out now. Give us some time. They will be there Thursday evening, Thursday night. And we will continue to try to do quick hits like we did with Tom Colicchio and Chris Fussell. We want to do more, so look out for those. They will come up automatically in your feed if you subscribe now. You can also go to getangry.us. That's a shortcut way to find the podcast to share it far and wide. Look out for us on Instagram and look out for Righteous Late Night. We have been doing Righteous Late Night from a new location. If you watch the video from this episode with Anya, go to angryamericans.us and you can see the video and what I am now calling Studio Delta. Check it out. You can watch the video from this episode or any other episode. And you can sign up for our newsletter where we continue to adapt, improvise, and overcome. Stay tuned, subscribe for free, and share, and keep this movement growing week by week by week. Please give us five stars anywhere you can. And if you want to give us one star or two stars, uh, when you put it in the search, here's how you spell my name. It's T-U-C-K-E-R-C-A-R-L-S-O-N. That's T-U-C-K-E-R-C-A-R-L-S-O-N. That's where you go if you want to leave one stars, and I thank you for that. And remember, it's okay to be angry, especially now, and know you're not alone. We're all a little angry. That's because we're paying attention. Where it began, I can't begin to know And so is Neil Diamond. Did you know Neil Diamond is 79 years old? Neil Leslie Diamond was born in Coney Island, Brooklyn, on January 24th, 1941. His father was a dry goods merchant, and he and his wife, Rose, were Jewish immigrants from Poland. The Diamond family temporarily relocated to Cheyenne, Wyoming, because of Mr. Diamond's military service during World War II. And during their time in Wyoming, Neil fell in love with singing cowboy movies and matinee showings at the local cinema. And after the end of World War II, Neil and his parents returned to Brooklyn, and he got a $9 acoustic guitar for a birthday gift, which began his interest in music. At age 15, Neil wrote his first song, which was titled Hear Them Bells. And given the focus on education, Neil went to Brooklyn's Erasmus High School, and he sang in the 100-member fixed chorus with classmate Barbara Streisand. And although the two didn't meet until 20 years later, Neil and a friend Jack Packer formed a duo singing group called Neil and Jack, and they sang at Long Island's Little Neck Country Club and recorded a single for Shell Records. The record failed to sell, and the duo broke up soon. And Neil Diamond actually entered NYU pre-med program to become a doctor on a fencing scholarship. Did you know that? Neil Diamond went to school on a fencing scholarship? Medicine did not interest him as much as music did, and he dropped out in his junior year, 10 credits shy of graduation. He went to work for the Sunbeam Music Company on Manhattan's famous Tin Pan Alley. And making 50 bucks a week, he worked at tailoring songs to meet the needs and abilities of the company's B-grade performers. He quit. He rented a storage room at a printing shop uh, above the famed Birdland nightclub on Broadway, and he began to live there and installed a $30 piano and a pay telephone and started writing songs about his life. So that's how Neil Diamond started. And now he's still after it. So if you're thinking about going out and hanging out at the beach, stay home for Neil Diamond. Stay home for him and teach your friends, your kids, your parents, a stranger. Stay home for Neil Diamond. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. 
Thanks for listening, especially in times like this. I hope it brings you some satisfaction and some inspiration. And please stay home, America. Stay vigilant and stay frosty. Sweet Caroline Good times never seem so good